0: Scott, there, or is he just? I'm here, lurking. What's up, Cube? What? up? What's up? <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, I got, two, up? Cu- I got oh. two cubes and a monolith for you right here. <laughs> well, uh, when I was driving home, I was think I was wondering what uh, any. Well, uh, Scott probably watched the Thundercats ball. You were probably too old to watch. No, the I, didn't, no, I didn't. I didn't. I never watched
1: it. <sighs> no. I know who they are, but I did not watch it.
0: Because I was thinking about the about the character of Mumra, Mumra, the guy that was like the mummy and he would turn into the big buff guy. Uh huh. Yeah, never mind. This is going. <laughs> this is just going nowhere. This bit I think there's your on on bit arrival. right there. There's bit is your is dead. bit on arrival. Because <laughs> I was gonna do this whole thing about I was gonna do the Mumra speech and then say Arnold should have done Mumra, but if you guys don't even know, you,
1: you know what? Man, I'll, I'll do it for the listeners. Screw you guys! You keep saying Mumra, I keep thinking Bumrush is what it sounds like. Bumrush, so.
0: Mumra, the ever living. So, so you could have had Ar- Arnold do that, and you know, do ancient spirits of evil transformed
2: this decay form into Mumra. The ever living. <laughs> see, see, Scott, I don't know if you, if you knew this secret of producing a podcast. is that? If you just sit silently long enough, Bill gives you a cold open.
0: <laughs> I got your cold open right here. Oh, wait. I thought you said colon open. Sorry. Ew.
1: <laughs> the horror. Oh. <laughs> There's your opener. There's
2: your opener. Back to the bin.
1: You yeah, know, I just realized that they did this in a, in a, um... Did you not hear the la 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 la
2: la la I, You know what? Welcome to shut up! <laughs> what, did, what did you just realize, Scott?
1: Yeah, did you're an a-hole. <laughs> I just walked right into that. I'm just realizing that the synopsis is... What would this be? Um, past tense... Don't we usually, we usually write them in like present tense, don't we? Oh Christ! Now I gotta go back and change all the verbiage. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm not changing shit. I'm just, I just noticed this. This, this is my first time setting eyes oh, yeah. on it. So, you know,
2: Amit um, was a dreamer. Was just, yeah. Oh so, so We we gotta work with the Jackie Gleason of podcasting. <gasps> Jackie Gleason was famous that he refused to rehearse. Oh, so he, this is the first time I'm seeing this.
1: we're ready to record well doesn't isn't uh what's his name doesn't brando do that too Uh, brando Uh, was just too busy at the buffet uh,
0: uh, (laughs) scott you come before me with this crap
1: can't can't you just get a suitcase to do this
0: (laughs) i don't get that that's what uh Uh, apparently he he wanted a donut or something
1: No, i heard it was a suitcase I thought it was a donut. Apparently at some, maybe it was a donut too, but apparently, according to legend, at some point uh, Marlon Brando told Richard Donner that he would just assume that he do the voice of Jor-El but that the the uh, personification of Jor-El be a suitcase because they were aliens on another planet and you don't really know what they look like, so why couldn't they just be a suitcase?
2: that's marlin that's why you're an actor not a writer
1: right yeah i'm i've never really understood i don't know if that's a true story or not but uh I, yeah that's one of those that's always kind of baffled me i'm like what yeah. i could have been somebody i could have been a
0: tourista <laughs> <laughs> a samsonite <laughs> a small travel on bag all right a big travel on bag and I'm losing the accent. Goodbye.
2: I don't know why. I totally lost to Brando. Anyways. <clears throat>
3: uh,
2: hello, everybody, and welcome to Shut Up! <laughs> <laughs> I really think we're gonna, I'm going to go with that Let's for a while. Let's just change the name. Yeah. Just change the name of the show. Uh, well, welcome to Back to the Bins. We are in week three of Horror Month. Ooh. I am Paul Spataro, and I am joined by the ever spooky Dr. Bill Robinson. Whoa! Whoa. And we are joined, as always, by Scott Hair-Raising Terror Gardner. <laughs> Hair losing, but yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> losing, raising—what's the difference? Okay, i am
1: i have i am going to derail us right out of the gate. So hopefully, you're going to leave in that as if we're bit on the rails. W- we were trying to get started here, but uh, yeah, I just found a page, and apparently Bill is the correct one. Um, there is a. Oh,
2: hold on, web this page day on the here. calendar.
1: Yeah, I know. There's a webpage that says that the headline of the article reads Marlon Brando wanted to play Jor-El as a bagel in original <laughs> Bagel. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> I uh, thought that it was a suitcase, but uh, uh, this says bagel. I don't know. but this... I knew it
0: was round and edible. Wait, <clears throat> well, here we go. Okay.
1: Donald recounts the... <laughs> Donner recounts the first time he met with Brando at his house about the role of Jor-El. He said, why don't I play this like a bagel? I was ready for him to say a green suitcase, and he said bagel. He said, how do we know what the people on Krypton look like? He had good logic. He said... Maybe they look like bagels up there in those days. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, this is hysterical. So apparently, I don't know, apparently this is a true story. Or or has some truth to it anyway, I don't know. Well,
0: but anyway. Pick, oh, pass me the locks.
1: <laughs> This is on, uh, oh wow, this is a very recent article. This is on comicbook.com forward slash 2016, forward slash 04, forward slash O2, and then the name of the article is Marlon Brando wanted to play jor as a bagel and Original Super. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is awesome. So, yeah, there you go.
0: I was right! <laughs> and that truly is horrible.
1: I will put this in the group. The Chizat.
0: Hmm? I said the Chizat. I'm trying, you know, speak slang. Excuse me, My? hiccups. I'm hiccuping. Mm. Uh huh. Much better. I see nothing in the chat. In the I'm chitchat. working on. I'm working on it. Work it, baby. Work it. So anyway,
2: <laughs> as I said, this is week three of Horror Month, and at the conclusion of week two, you will not hear where we discussed what we were going to do today, but we decided we would do Giants in today's episode, and one of the books we picked was Marvel Graphic Novel Number Seventeen, which is the Revenge of the Living Monolith. Now, if you're not familiar with graphic novels, they are quite lengthy. So, Bill and Scott decided that they would split that book. And I don't know how far we're going to get. We're definitely going to do that book, and we'll see. If we finish that, maybe we'll have another giant for you. But for now, we ha- just have that book. Unless anybody has any pre book horror comic discussion.
0: Mm, I'm no. in, yeah. Mm. Nah. 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 nah.
2: nah. <laughs>
1: You said we split the book, and all I could think of is that part in Back to the Future where Marty, and Back to the Future 2, where he goes, I don't
2: know, all I got was a damn cover. <laughs> so, it, it's, I, I think we, we're we going, not so much intentionally, but we're going more superhero horror this this year than we did last year. Hmm. Yeah. Which is fine, I, you know, I, I, at least I think it's fine, I don't know about the people listening, yeah. but. If they don't like it, then uh, what can I tell you other than the fact that they're a bunch of cubes? <laughs> Freaking cubes! You, um, you always were a cube.
1: I, you know, I, it's—I don't know that it was intentional or anything. It's just I think we just we go with what we're comfortable with. You know, I've—I've I've never been a big horror guy, so what can I say? I, you know, there's only so many times I can bring the living mummy to the table. You know. <laughs> um, I guess there's two Dracula, but I don't know. Somehow that one always seems like a cliche to bring it at Halloween because like everybody else does does two Dracula, So I don't know. Um, I'm I to usually
0: like any... to I usually like to bring a maybe a Camusol and a and a, a Boosty. Oh wait, never mind.
1: <laughs> that <laughs> would
2: truly be horror. <laughs> I, I don't
1: know I... what's what's our what's our other themes for horror month. What do we still have in the queue? Well, we have a the
0: uh, crossover at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, uh, but but just you know a what? Surprise. Let's
2: let's crossover. wait and see what we get done today before we decide what we're going to do next week. Because if my book carries over, that may influence what we do next time. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, in the meanwhile, once again, we have Marvel graphic novel number seventeen, "Revenge of the Living Monolith," no. which came out in nineteen eighty-five
1: we want to were do, young
2: but i was not
1: do we want to do origin stories up front or at the end
2: uh up to you i don't have a compelling origin story on this one
0: yeah i don't i'm not i, I don't know if i bought this new or if i picked it up later um i'm i've, I've always liked the story i actually have this somewhere around here yeah um, as well as digitally so
1: yeah, I hunted this one down as a back issue, and all I could tell you about it is I got it much later after it came out, uh, and it had a lot of buildup, because um, it was one of those things that I wanted to read. I, I, I think this was advertised in Marvel Comics of the time, but being a graphic novel... Uh, For some reason, I just couldn't get it in the area that I lived in. So I had to go to an actual comic shop to get it. And I know that I bought this at Twilight Book and Game, which sadly doesn't exist anymore. It was in Syracuse. I'm not sure what I paid for it. I think I paid cover or maybe slightly above cover, but I think I paid cover for it because I seem to remember the section that it was in, that it was a graphic novel section, and they were just charging cover. Um, unfortunately, the one I have is a second print. I would love to have a, an original first print of this, but uh, I don't but yeah, know if I have a
0: first or second print of this. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to check that. Uh, you know what? I must have got this new because I I also have the 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 next gra- uh, gra- gra- graphic novel 18, which is the Sensational Seahawk Seahawk She Hulk. God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. I might have bought those together. Now that you say that, I might have bought those both at the same time. Because yeah, I have that one as well. I'm spotty on Marvel graphic novels, though. They were something because of the nature of them. You know, you you can kind of pick and choose, and that's exactly what I did. So I only well, have the ones I was ever really interested in. Because there was a bunch that were uh,
0: offbeat. I'll say. Yeah. It, it wasn't the. Street Marvel Fair. You had Star yeah. Slammers. I mean, you would go from X-Men to Star Slammers
1: to Conan, Kill Raven, Super Boxers. Well, they had that one about, it was like a Jewish vampire, and they had they had a bunch of really weird ones. Chris used to have one, he may still have it, that he was so proud of having when we were kids because it was this green chick who was topless like through the entire thing. I cannot remember what the name of that was, but he was so proud of that. Because it actually showed pubes. And mm. it was this green chick that had blonde pubes, which I always thought was the weirdest looking thing in the world. But he just, he, he for whatever reason, just loved that book and was so proud that he, he owned something that he knew his mom would <laughs> not want him to have. But I cannot for the life of me think of that one. But, uh, you know, what the name of it was. But mm. something like Sick or something like that was the title. But, yeah, I was, I was very selective on Marvel graphic novels. But this is one... Again, I'm pretty sure this was advertised in the regular Marvel books of the time, because I always remember the cover. And that's the reason I wanted to get this, because it just has that gorgeous cover, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And I wish, to this day, I wish that they would make a poster of this cover image, because it's just a great piece of art. But and it's I the s- cover that sold it to me. I seriously uh, doubt nowadays they
0: would make this Yeah, that's true. It's, yeah, because of the content on the cover, yeah. which we discussed.
1: Exactly. But you know, back in the day, this cover was, you know, not only is it a really eye catching cover, but for, you know, for very obvious reasons, it also always reminded me a lot of uh, the 76 King Kong movie, because some of the mm-hmm. imagery from that movie, you know, the promotional uh, imagery was very similar to the cover of this book. So that caught my attention right out of the gate. But
2: that's all I got as far as origin stories. Yeah, mine is oh. kind of dull. Uh, I always thought it was a cool cover. I did not own this. I do not own this. If anybody has a spare copy they want to send me, I will gladly accept it. But I, uh, <laughs> I, I was, always, it was something I always thought looked cool, and uh, you know, I finally got to read it on a scan, uh, and uh, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. You know, giving away my thoughts early, but I thought it was pretty cool, and uh, that's it. It's pretty dull.
0: On sale date July sixteenth, nineteen eighty five. For six ninety five.
1: Ooh wee. For six ninety five? The cover says nine ninety five. Uh, Mike's amazing world says six ninety five. Uh, maybe this is a later printing. Oh yeah, this is a second print. The scan is a second printing as well. So yeah, it must be they they jacked the price up when they reprinted it. Those bastards. Jack jack well, jack it up. We ready to get into this?
2: Who's yeah. Got the first um, half? I Bill has
1: the first heard. half, so that means Bill has to talk about the cover too. OK, I will do that.
0: Uh, the cover, Mark Silvestri did the pencils. And Jeff Isherwood did the inks. And they also did the inside chores as well. Um, David Michelinie is the writer. Joe Rosen is the letterer. And colorist is Bob Sharon. And now the cover, let me go to another big, bigger picture so I can see it better. Because I'm getting old. What street would this be, Paul?
2: Is that even an, that? Well, one, New well, this York doesn't have the elevated street because there is no oh, okay. ele- elevated train. Uh, there is, I mean, I'm trying to think of how you could possibly justify this. There is a train that goes on the Brooklyn Bridge, but it isn't doesn't quite look like that. It's <laughs> so. I think they took Was a little autistic maybe one... license with this.
1: Maybe was yeah. there one there in 1985, maybe? No. Well, they there got was a train, there's a train that goes across. Or
2: something? Unless it just goes across the Manhattan Bridge. Now I'm having a little tough time thinking about it. But when it does go across, the roadway that the cars go on is above where the train is. So it wouldn't look like that. I got you. Right. Like I said, I'm not 100% sure if the train goes over the Brooklyn Bridge or just the Manhattan Bridge. Which is in the same, you know, they're not too far apart from each other. So you could kind of... Uh, you know, give it that no. You know, allow it for that. Uh, the only thing about the cover, I mean, I don't know if we, how much we want to talk about it right now. I I, I love the image and I, I love the the kinetic energy of it. The perspective on it seems a little wonky. The people the, don't seem like... quite right. So I don't. You know, I I think that they're trying to put a lot in there, and they do put a lot in there. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it just seems slightly off on perspective to me.
0: Like the people should be smaller.
3: Or well, closer, I can maybe run kind of away accept or... that the one
2: guy is very close to us. The guy who's in a full-out run at the front, and then he's got a twin brother to his left, mm-hmm. or to his right, our <laughs> left. But it's it just they they just don't seem sized appropriately to me. I don't know. And like I said, the train really doesn't run there like that. And then when when you go to the actual trade center, the one that he's knocking down seems to you know except for where it's falling apart, it seems to lack some detail. All well, like I said, we I think it's a beautiful that, that, cover. Don't don't misread my yeah. comments as saying I think it looks bad. I'm just trying to look at it with a somewhat critical eye. Well, basically,
0: for those that don't have the cuck, don't have the image, it's the the living monolith. Well, it's the living pharaoh in his living monolith form, which he transforms into once he's absorbed too much uh, yes, he's absorbed dogs. Once he's uh, absorbed too much cosmic radiation cosmic energy cosmic whatever cosmic radiation bagel radiation cosmic bagels too many cosmic bagels and um he's basically smashing through one of the twin towers just with his fist and like tearing it apart like it's paper mache so um and like like we were discussing in the in the in the foreground we have people running away in in terror um And like a cityscape in between them and the living monolith as he's doing his rampage. And then off to the other side, because that picture only takes up, I'd say, two thirds of the cover. And then off to the left, you have six inset pictures down at the bottom, uh, which is kind of odd because normally in comics you would have them up at the top. But they're down at the bottom and it's Spider-Man, Thor, Captain America Reed Richards, Human Torch, and She-Hulk. And then above that, in the top left-hand corner, it says Marvel Graphic Novel. Then that spreads across the picture and and this other bar of color that they have on on the left-hand side. And it's uh, Revenge of the Living Monolith by David Michelinie, Mark Silvestri, and Jeff Isherwood. So I uh, guess we've pretty much beat the cover to death.
1: Not yet, but we'll talk oh, okay. about it later. Okay. <laughs> See, I, I'm I'm surprised at you guys. I love this cover. I this this the cover is what made me seek this book out because I love this cover. I think the cover is fantastic. You know, he's he's large and in charge in the background, and you've got the, the tiny little humans in the foreground that are that are fleeing and running from him. And now, you know, in historical perspective, with what happened to the towers in real life. I think it's just that much more poignant an image because the that portion of the drawing that has the people fleeing the collapse of the tower is pretty faithful to what it really looked like when, you know, mm-hmm. the real towers fell. So I think it gives a, a certain uh, weight to this particular image. But I, I just think it's a it's a really striking image. I, I just, I've always really liked this. And again, you know, it really reminds me of some of the imagery that was released uh, in conjunction with the 76 King Kong movie because I want to say that there was a picture of of Kong smashing through something. I, I don't think it was one of the towers, but he was smashing something. Maybe it was like the Great Wall or something you know, that, that held him on the island. But there was a lot of the imagery, of course, that did have him... Well, I remember him There was standing... a lot of image, yeah, standing on the towers. So you know, all combined,
2: it's just reminiscent of that particular imagery to me. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, because as I said, I I really like the cover, and it is the thing that always made me very interested in reading this story. You know, I find it very compelling. My my criticism is more on a technical level. Mm-hmm. You know that that I look at it, and you know, again, just trying to look at it through a critical eye, somewhat, and picking out what works, what doesn't work, why do I like it, why don't I like it. Uh, from an artistic point of view, I think it's really compelling when I right. start looking at it with, with a more realistic point of view. You know, there's, there's certain things about it that I think fall short of technically the way they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make it any less compelling for me. I, I You know, if, if I didn't like it, I'd come out and tell you and we could debate that uh, <laughs> and, and go on with it. But it's not a matter of not liking it. Well, silence. Bill, you have the first yeah. half
1: of the synopsis.
2: All right. And uh, I uh,
0: glommed, borrowed, pilfered, stole. We'll say borrowed. Uh, I give full credit to the uncanny X Men.net. I, uh, I went into the biography of the Living Monolith and I picked out the portions of Marvel graphic novel 17 that pertained, uh, that were in, in there. Um, and kind of stitched them together with a little little uh, things here and there to to make it all fit. Since uh, Scott and I have been on assignment, as some of you are, are been joking in the in the mail, but we haven't got to that mail yet. So um, in order, since we've been working a lot, I uh, I, I cheated <laughs> and we pulled down a uh, a pre-done synopsis. Because this is a big this is a big book. You guys just gonna let me dangle out there.
2: <laughs> dangling dangling You're supposed to book? read Synopsized. your synopsis <laughs> Okay alright Alright already <clears throat> Just just a thought <clears throat> I was thinking like when you did your synopsis You might synopsize the book Very funny So <clears throat> Amet Abdul
0: Grew up in Al Jazeera, A neighborhood in Cairo, Egypt Amet was a dreamer Dreamer Nothing but a dreamer Someday gonna be a pharaoh And Nothing. Okay. Creating elaborate fantasies where he was one of the pharaohs of old and the other children were his subjects that he ruled as a benevolent god-king. Ahmet was quite a character and often drew attention from from the other children with his antics, both good and bad. A local bully named Hassan... Hassan Chop! That's for Russell. See if he can figure out where that's from. ...was uncommonly cruel to Ahmet ridiculing his play-acting and physically tormenting the boy. Still, Amet had an admirer in Feline, a beautiful girl from the neighborhood who became his best friend growing up. As he got older, Amet's playtime fantasies became—whoa, whoa, 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 whoa—became a serious hobby, and he dedicated himself to the study of pharaohs and their great power. In high school, Amet reacted with glee when his genealogy study supposedly found a direct link between his family line and the pharaohs themselves, making him a modern-day son of Horus and Osiris. The ridicule and derision he received from his teachers and classmates did little to stifle Amet's joy. Time passed, and Amet and Feline fell in love. Aww. Feline loved Amet despite the fact that he was batshit crazy and believed in his research. They enrolled in the American University at Cairo, where Amet became a professor of Egyptology. Amet's professional recognition was soon overshadowed at home by the birth of his beautiful daughter, whom he and Feline named Salome. Unfortunately, Amet's excuse, happy excuse, home, me,
2: excuse me, excuse me.
0: Salome. 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 Salome? May? Salome. 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 S-A-L-O-M-E. Salome. 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 Scott, can I get a ruling? Let's compromise, Salome. Gotcha. <laughs> Unfortunately, Ahmet's happy home life and his research were on a collision course. Ahmet's investigation led him to the conclusion that the pharaohs and gods of ancient Egypt were actually early mutants. Apocalypse, anyone? Who used their powers to dominate the people of Egypt and build their remarkable civilization. Amet unveiled... Amet unveiled his findings at a symposium of scientific and religious figures. But his audience turned into a mob over the sacrilegious ideas he was proposing. Amet and Feline were forced to flee with baby salami as the crowd attacked him. Manic with fear. I, I hate... Me or Scott? Baby Salami. Hey, Scott. Scott made the ruling. (laughs) We were forced to flee with Baby Salami as the crowd attacked them. They were hungry. Manic with fear, Amet drove away from the pursuing mob at a dangerous speed. He nearly ran over a group of children playing in the streets when Feline spotted them, and Amet flipped over their their car, trying to avoid the kids. Amet and Salami were thrown clear of the burning wreck but Feline was still trapped inside the car such a, give me laughter just horrible sad thing Ahmed begged the mob to help him save his, his his wife but they refused leaving him alone to pry open the burning door and rescue the woman that he loved. Ahmed's efforts failed and the car exploded burning Feline alive inside furious by the dark face of human ignorance he was confronted with, Abdul instinctively lashed out at the crowd manifesting his mutant abilities for the first time by firing a bolt of cosmic energy from his fingertips as the mob fled Abdul was approached by a mysterious man in a fez who called him master this man represented the cult of the living pharaoh an ancient order who still worshipped the pharaohs of Egypt as gods among men the cult had been following Abdul's work he said and agreed with Abdul's finding about his own heritage and the mutant power of the pharaohs with the respect he had craved since childhood handed to him on a silver platter, Amit Abdul quickly took to the role of living pharaoh, acting as lord and master of the cult. Abdul directed the cult to take Salami away to Malta so that she could be raised safely and not turned into a sandwich. As he turned the cult's resources to a quest for even greater power and recognition, in the meantime... I, was, I turned all that into a run-on sentence. Abdul maintained his public facade, meanwhile, behind Abdul's public facade, and he rose to become his country's premier archaeologist and Egyptologist. However, comma, pause for effect, after numerous battles and subsequent defeat after defeat, Ahmet found himself taken into custody and transported back to Egypt, where he was incarcerated for his crimes. In a karmic joke, Abdul found himself in, himself imprisoned in a cell block with his childhood tormentor Hassan Chop as a guard the two men picked up as if they as if the intervening decades hadn't occurred with Hassan taunting Amet about his silly dreams of power Hassan bragged constantly about the real power he had authority thanks to his badge Hassan should not have been so confident in the inhibitor gauntlets that restrained Abdul's power though while his full power was still denied him, the pharaoh could produce enough low-level cosmic force to slowly wear away the gauntlets from the inside, eventually freeing his hands and his powers. With his renewed power, Ahmed blasted his childhood tormentor so hard, Hassan was embedded in the wall where he struck. As the cult of the living pharaoh arrived on cue to free their master, Abdul ordered Hassan's unconscious form brought among them. <clears throat> The cult of the Living Pharaoh had not been idle in Abdul's absence. Still seeking ways around his connection to Alex Summers, the Pharaoh's scientist devised a means of harnessing the cosmic energies of the Fantastic Four as an alternative for unleashing the Living Monolith. And I'm just going to pause for a second. Alex Summers, his power as Havoc, limits uh, the Living Pharaoh's power that allows him to turn into the Living Monolith. So... Uh, they kind of said that, but anyone who reads the X-Men, I'm sure we'll discuss that when we get to it. Uh, a cultist named Faye, Faye, Faye... Paul, can I have a ruling?
2: I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Pronounce it in your own
0: dopey way. Faya Saheed infiltrated... I think I pronounced that right. Infiltrated the Baxter building by pretending to be a defector from the cult when the Human Torch, quote-unquote, rescued her. Can't see the quotes I'm doing. From cultists on the str- cultists, cultists on the streets of San Francisco. No, of Manhattan. She was then able to position three of the four within a pyramid teleportation trap, sending them into Abdul's clutches in his catacombs lair under Cairo. Thus, indist partist one. Now with onto with Scotus Magnus. What? <laughs>
2: Scott, All right, what he's saying so, is welcome to shut up oh,
1: boy, okay, I'll try to be um, what's the word, succinct alright, so part two I,
2: I, I would prefer it if you could just be understandable oh, hey.
1: alright, so the plan then called for Faya to uh, how, did, how did Bill pronounce her name Faya Faya? Faya, Faya okay, for Faya to break a window psst, and leap psst, to safety psst, psst. She's going to oh. be salami The plan then called for Faya to break a window and leap to safety in a passing cultist airship, but she hadn't counted on the super-resistant glass of the FF headquarters. With Faya trapped by the FF's remaining member, She-Hulk, cult protocols insisted she be electrocuted to death. Um, That's the stupidest sentence I ever heard. Electrocuted is to death. Who wrote this? All right, be electrocuted by the collar around her neck. Without a second thought, Abdul... Uh, had done the same thing to two cultists earlier that day when they fell behind during his prison escape. Upon seeing, quote-unquote, Faya Saeed on the uh, surveillance monitors, however, Ahmet was shocked. Faya was actually his own doctor, uh, yeah, doc- daughter, rather, his own daughter. All right, what did you say it was, Paul? Salome? Yes. Salami. See, I and, thought and, it was Salome And I'm Salome pretty confident well, that I'm but...
2: right on this one. Oh,
1: okay. do you hear that? Scott thought it was Salome as well. No, I'm just saying. I I don't know anything about how these people pronounce Salami. Names. All I know is that they need more like John Smiths over in their country. Anyway, whatever her name I believe, is, his I daughter. I believe
2: Salome was the, uh, I think, the stepdaughter of Herod who danced to get John the Baptist's head cut off. Sounds kind of familiar. And I believe her name was Salome. But okay. you know what, we'll, we'll just go with Salami because I'm sure that's the, <laughs> the way they pronounce names back then.
1: So he quickly learned that uh, Salome had returned from school during his imprisonment and insisted on taking a key role in the operation, hoping to prove her worth to her father and the cult. With the blood of the living pharaoh running through her veins, the cultists were incapable of denying her request. Abdal hesitated to follow his own protocols, recognizing Salome as the last remnant of his old life and his connection to his beloved wife. Tragically, however, his prisoner Hassan was nearby to overhear this exchange and began mocking on for being, uh, for still being the same wimp on the playground from years ago. With a glint of madness in his eyes, the Living Pharaoh responds to Hassan's taunts by triggering the collar, electrocuting his own daughter before she could reveal any of his plans. With the Fantastic Four firmly secured in the latest power-siphoning sarcophagi, the Living Pharaoh begins his transformation into the Living Monolith. Looking to vent his rage for Salome's death, the monolith had himself transported to Manhattan, growing out of his own concord when he arrived and rampaging through the city. This proved to be the longest incident of the monolith's manifestation to date, and Abdul continued to soak up more and more cosmic energy, passing from 30 to 60 to over 150 feet tall. Captain America, She-Hulk, Spider-Man, and even the American Air Force proved incapable of halting the living monolith's progression. Abdul only hesitated when his path of destruction carried him to a school like the one where he and Feline had met. Sensing his reluctance, Captain America got Abdul's attention and tried to reason with him. He urged Ahmet to see the good in humanity and not judge them based on Hassan or the men who had left his wife to burn. The Living Monolith might have listened if the Air Force's men on the ground hadn't taken the distraction as a chance to fire a bazooka at him. Enraged by the apparent trick, the Living Monolith began rampaging once more. Meanwhile, Spider-Man decided he was of no use in the battle and returned to the Baxter building where he recreated Abdul's pyramid teleportation device. Materializing in Cairo, Egypt, the webslinger fought through the cult of the Living Pharaoh and found a way to overload the device holding the Fantastic Four captive. At that moment, back in New York, Captain America and She-Hulk managed to shock the living monolith with the entire Con-Ed power grid. Together, these events seemed to be enough to topple the monolith. Though he fell, the monolith did not revert to his human form. It seemed a duel had passed beyond the point where his transformation could be reversed, even without the Fantastic Four as a power source. His body would continue to absorb cosmic energy and grow larger and larger. Indeed, he had already reached the point where he could no longer support his own mass, leaving him in Central Park, where he fell. Captain America summoned Thor and the Avengers, who attempted to remove the still-growing monolith from Earth by wrapping him in an adamantium cable, uh, cable and using the power of Mjolnir to launch him skyward. The Cult of the Living Pharaoh arrived on the scene to protect their master and engage the Avengers. Nearly motionless, but still aware, Abdul watched as the normal citizens of New York rose up in defense of their heroes, fighting against the cultists. He witnessed an average man die in the cultist ray blast, protecting a small child who was a complete stranger to him. Finding truth in Captain America's words, the living monolith called for the cultists to stop. Uh, Abdul called upon Thor and, with all his strength, pushed off from the ground in time with Mjolnir's throw. Now, I just have to point out that the synopsis kind of left out the fact that they tried to launch him once using Mjolnir, and failed. It didn't mention that, so this was the second attempt. uh, With the monolith basically shoving off in advance of Mjolnir, Um, then it worked. Uh, The added force gave the hammer the lift it needed to carry the living monolith to escape velocity, sending him on a journey through space. Over time, the monolith continued to expand until he reached planetary proportions, and life and ves- vegetation began to grow on his uh, vast surface, sustained by the energy of his cosmi- cosmically charged cells. The living monolith found a measure of contentment as he evolved to become the living planet. That's not a bad synopsis. It's a little clunkily worded, but yeah, that's that's the basic gist of it. Um, so before we get into our breakdowns and such, uh, I just, I, I want to know, uh, Paul kind of tipped his hand already, uh, uh, but I want to know what you guys thought of this. Uh, no, I'm assuming this is first reads for you guys. Oh yeah. no no I've 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 read had, this before. You had read it before? Yeah. Yeah. Paul, this was your first read? Yeah, it was.
2: What'd you think? I liked it. I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, for whatever it is, 80 pages. I, I, th- I thought it was a pretty quick read. Without yeah. again, and, and this is this is something that that we're gonna hear repeated in in a future episode that we've already recorded. But it was a, a fairly quick read without feeling. Uh, decompressed,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which is which is exactly what I you know what I like in a story. I like something where it's a page turner and you and you're getting through it fast, but you don't feel like you know the reason you're getting through it fast is because there's only three words on the page. Right. So you know I I thought it was enjoyable to read. I do did think it played a little bit with the history of the character, that it's it's a little hard to acclimate the prior history as. Uh, You know, as it was in the comics with what's going on here.
1: It almost appeared like they were unfamiliar
2: with his living monolith form. I gotcha. Okay. Which, you know, he had been the living monolith on several occasions before this. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, but that, well, they
0: kind of touched on that. Although they don't show it. They show where he's fighting, where he's fought the X-Men numerous times. As
2: the living pharaoh. They don't show him as the living living monolith.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah, that is true.
2: And, and he really didn't fight the X-Men. Well, he kind of did, but didn't. Because he had an appearance... His first appearance was in the X-Men uh, around issue 52, 51, somewhere around there. Then he appeared... 54, 54 was his first... 54, okay. He yeah. appeared in, uh, in a Living Mummy story. Right. He appeared in Marvel Team-Up. And he appeared in Power Man and Iron Fist. And mm-hmm. in the Power Man and Iron Fist story, I believe there are X Men that team up with Power Man and Iron Fist in that. But he really wasn't, you know, in the Living Mummy story, he wasn't facing the X Men, and in the Marvel Team Up, I believe it was Spider Man and Thor that faced off against him. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. So
0: yeah, that was Marvel they, Team Up seventy. Yeah.
2: They kind of just take some of the history and sweep it under the carpet, and I, I, I probably am a little too anal on continuity, as are many of our brethren. But, you know, I I don't like when they just kind of pretend things didn't happen. You know, we're going to tell the story now, and we're going to pretend all that stuff that happened in the past didn't happen. So I I don't like that. But other than that, I really enjoyed this story. There were a couple couple of points where, you know, I kind of said, really, that's what would happen? But, you know, that's fine. And there were a couple of slightly heavy-handed moments, and we'll get to it as we go through the book. I like that they... oh.
1: I just want to be clear, you're, you're you're saying that you think that they were ignoring the fact that he had ever been the living monolith? That's the way it felt to
2: me. Okay. Did, I mean, okay. did you have a different take on it?
1: Well, I just think that that's interesting given
2: that the name is Revenge of the Living Monolith. And I, I see... Well, I don't the think the revenge is for me... his prior defeats. The revenge is for the fact that his daughter got killed and and his wife got killed. Right. I, I don't think it's because the X-Men beat him. I don't think that's what he's seeking revenge for. I think he's seeking revenge against humanity. I thought that there
1: was a, a passage in here somewhere where one of the heroes gives like basically a brief rundown of him and refers to him as the living monolith. I, I thought, but I could be wrong. You on could, that. I could
2: be wrong as well. I mean, I, I read it through, but, you know, I could, I could have missed something in here. Uh, like I said, I don't want to go too much into to fine details because I'd rather do that as we go through the book. Right. You know, I'm just giving overall impressions right now. Uh, just overall, I thought the artwork was really nice. I think some there is some lack of detail at parts, and I think that's compensated for by a nice coloring job.
3: Mm.
2: The coloring, I, you know, it, it's strange because it doesn't. If I described the coloring job to myself, I would say, "Oh, I don't like that." But when I see it on paper, I do. It's a, it's, it's very pastel. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that, it, it but and, and it kind of
0: smooths things together or just like blends them. It, it just makes them, it gives it detail in its lack of detail, I guess, kind of.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. And I think if you look at it, you can kind of understand exactly what you're saying. And and I'm generally not a big fan of the overuse of the pastel colors, which this really has a lot of it. But in this book, I think it works. It, it, it you know, it, it looks very compelling to the eye to me.
0: When we get to a page, I want to ask you. I there's there's a shot that I think looks like another artist, but I'll wait till we get to that. It's only it's only like the second or third page in.
2: Okay, yeah. Okay. What what are your overall thoughts, Scott? Just because you read it before doesn't mean you don't have <laughs> thoughts. Well, no, I uh, I haven't read
1: this since I initially got it, so it's been a long, long time since I've read it, um, and I was. I was really afraid that it might not hold up because I remember when I read it, liking it a lot, being a little bit disappointed that there wasn't a little more action, being a little disappointed that that fabulous image on the cover is not reflected in the book. See, I get a
0: feeling that's younger Scott. I think older Scott will appreciate because I that's kind of the way I am. But I'll let you finish.
1: But. Reading it again, I, I think it still ha- uh, still holds up. I think it's still a lot of fun. Um, unfortunately, even with as many pages as it is, it's got a pacing problem in the fact that it seems to take its time getting going. And then by the time it does get going, it's like all of a sudden they realize, oh shit, we don't have very many pages left. we got to wrap this thing up. So I do wish that there was more of the rampage. I, I wish that we had seen more... Uh, of the destruction Um, by the time we get to the end of the story we're just told that there was a lot of destruction and and a lot of deaths and everything but we don't necessarily see it and that's a bit of a shame because with something like this especially again with that cover image I I think that you go into a book like this expecting that this is going to be kind of what see there's a um I don't know what you would call this. There's a a note essentially from the author, David Michelinie on the inside front cover that basically explains the Genesis of this book. And it was basically, uh, it was an idea from James Owsley saying, I want to do an old fashioned fifties horror uh, mon- giant monster movie set in the Marvel universe. I think that's a great idea. I think that's a really cool idea. And that's the idea that you get when you look at the cover and while I do think it's a it's a fun read, I think it's a really good story. At the end of the day, that particular element of it, the giant monster loose in New York element is kind of given short shrift over everything else that happens in the book. And, and that's kind of a shame, because I think you're only ever going to get one chance to do something like this, or at least, you know, not not chances very often to do something like this. So that would be really my only serious criticism of the book is that I love the giant monster stuff and just wish we'd gotten more of it. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I was pleasantly surprised to find that, yeah, it still holds up. I think the characterizations are really good and, uh, and we'll get into some of the other, uh, elements of it that I really like. Um, but yeah, that, that was the only thing I think, um, if this had been, cause what is this? Is it 80 pages? 78, but yeah. 78, yeah. So I think if this was, say, if they'd have gone like 96 96, pages, for example, I I think that would have maybe better served it. You know, just a little more smash, a little more um, destruction. And one of the big things, you know, you, you set this story in New York. On the cover, you're destroying what at that time was probably the most iconic structure in New York. Yet in the story itself, nothing iconic gets destroyed. So I thought that was a strange decision that, you know, you're you're setting it in probably the most famous place in the world, definitely the most famous city in the world. So if you're going to have this giant monster rampage there, have him destroy some recognizable things, you know, have him put his foot through the roof of grand central station or have him, you know, smash the statue of Liberty, you know, something recognizable, but they don't, for whatever reason, they don't do that, even though it's on the cover. And again, that's just, that's an odd decision to me. But, uh, again, overall, I I really enjoy it. Uh, I enjoy it more as I think just a, a good, um, you know let, let's get some of the big guns of the marvel universe all together to fight the menace story as opposed to necessarily a really good giant monster story if you know what i mean
2: mm-hmm. i well, think from- though reading Michelini's note that you made reference to i the way i read that it sounded like the book was kind of viewed when they when they were talking about it being just a giant monster in new york it sounds like the the book was being viewed almost as a joke Right. And then as he added more and more of the human elements, that's when people started saying, oh, I can't wait to read this. So right. I think he was swayed to, to kind of detour off that giant monster element that was attracting you to it in the first place. Right, At least that's the way I, I interpreted his comments.
0: Yeah, because from what I remembered, um, I mean, it's been a long time since I read this, and, and I mainly remembered the battle stuff, and I didn't really remember the whole... the. <sighs> I, I don't want to say humanization, but the filling in of um of the character and how Ahmet became who he was. Right. I mean, he, he might have been a little off as a kid, but, you know, it didn't help everybody picking on him. You know, I mean, you know, the kid had dreams and he did the research and discovered it, you know, that he wasn't crazy. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of... I, I don't want to say it, it's akin to Doctor Doom, but it's kind of along the lines of of how you know everybody turned against him and then he rose up to build himself back up right into something else bigger stronger faster no wait no it's not the six million dollar man but um and it's and it kind of it 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 puts a lot of tragedy that you didn't have with the character before because before he was just a cardboard cutout villain that fought the x-men really that's what he was when in, in his first appearance he yeah, was as far a nut job. Know, he didn't
2: have any true backstory until this, right?
0: I mean, and this gave him a good backstory. I mean, I mean, he's still a nut job when he kills his own daughter here. But I,
2: I, uh, I will get to that. But I actually kind of like that sequence, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. So,
1: um, should we start going through the book a little bit? Sure, I think we could do that. I just want to point out um, again, you know, that inside front cover has that little blurb from David Michelini laying out the origins of the book. I think it's very interesting to note that. So essentially, the the concept of this originated with James Owsley, who's credited here as the editor. Owsley would eventually be uh, canned as an editor by Jim Shooter, and I just think that that's uh, that's interesting to note. Was it wasn't the um,
2: Daredevil villain? James.
1: Oh, <laughs>
2: is that Owsley's
1: first name? Is it James? I don't remember. No,
2: actually, it's Leland.
1: Leland. That's right. You're right. It is Leland. <laughs> James Owsley is today Christopher Priest, and it's really weird because that's Christopher I was Priest.
2: Really? Yeah. Oh, he I was He had a just... wonderful run on Black Panther.
1: Yeah, I was just reading about him a couple of nights ago, and uh, read the whole story about him having been canned by Shooter. And apparently, according to Shooter, when he fired him as an editor, uh, Owsley thanked him for it. You know, like sincerely thanked him. Like you know, he he realized he was not any good in that particular uh, job,
2: and so for, thanked James him for Owsley it. I was lead leader, Christopher Priest. Uh,
1: it's there's a whole story about. I'm trying to remember where I was reading. It. I don't know if it was Wikipedia or somewhere, but there's a whole story behind it. Um, he's never really publicly explained the whole thing, but I, according to what I was reading, it had something to do with. For one, he's an ordained Baptist minister. Um, but also, I guess he had once said in an interview that uh, if his uh, marriage didn't work out, which it didn't it ended in divorce, um, that he would change his name to priest. And he did. So hmm. I don't know what that was all about, but yeah, same guy. And a hell of a hell of a writer. I think he's a really good writer. Um, I've liked just about everything of his I've ever read. So, uh, Janet Jackson made the logo. Yeah, I was just looking at that. Yeah.
2: According yeah, I, to this, guess, I guess you become uh, Christopher Priest the same way Adam Austin becomes Gene Colin.
1: Yeah,
2: I guess so. Okay, and so uh, so let's start looking. Okay. So I guess I'll, I'll bring us through a little bit here. So we we open okay. with kind of a, I think, a pretty cool splash page. Mm-hmm. Uh, of now, one one of the things I note though is now I've never been to Egypt, but I assume the streets of Egypt aren't. Like well, you're walking never through a mummy movie. Egypt. Oh, sorry. You know, I I assume it's not as if you're walking through a mummy movie or going through you know the uh, Indiana Jones area. You know, sometimes you see these. Yeah, places. but this is 1950.
0: Yes. Is when the shot takes place. So I mean, I see what you're saying, but you
2: would I, you would think it was 1850. Uh, from the way it's drawn here.
1: Is it just me, or does Ahmet right there? Is he kind of reminiscent of
2: Max from Where the Wild Things Are? Yes, I never <laughs> saw. It. I didn't see that until just now, but yes. Oh, yeah. oh, that 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 just adds a level of cool to it, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah,
1: I think that's <laughs> neat. Yeah, this and- uh, this whole opener, I thought was uh, it was sad. It was tragic. I think you know a lot of us can can relate to this sort of thing. You know, schoolyard, you know, bullying as a kid and everything. And uh, yeah, I just. I liked this. I, you know, it, it's funny. You know, Bill was talking about this, about the whole thing with, you know, giving him a backstory and everything. But more than anything, I, I think, you know, creating not only a backstory for the villain, but a, 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 a motivation, maybe even a sense of sympathy with his plight. I don't know that this, at this time in 1985, that probably wasn't overused yet. It was probably still something of a novel thing. These days, I'm sick to death of it. So I was trying to put it in its perspective historically with this and not roll my eyes at the whole thing because it is very well done. But as this has become kind of a thing in both comics and especially in movies, I've gotten kind of tired of it. It's like, can we not just get a bad guy who's a scumbag bad guy? He's bad because he's bad. He's not bad because he had a bad childhood or he's not bad because... You know, things just didn't well, to, go his to, way in life. He's bad because he's bad.
2: To quote a movie that you don't care for, some people just want to see the world burn.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I can i'm I can be down with that. But you know, th- that said, that's not necessarily a criticism of this story because I like the story. I, I just want to be clear on that, but it it is one of those things where um, I at this point in my life, I don't need to necessarily see sympathetic villains anymore and while I like the story with this I do question whether it was truly necessary could we not have seen him just you know just start the, you know could we not have just started this story with I'm the living pharaoh and I want to suck the power of the fantastic oh I've got the power and now I'm you know I'm 150 feet tall well you and know what I think you could have done your pages,
2: you know? I think what you could have done is you could have started with him learning that he had the lineage of the pharaohs in him right and beco- and just basically going off on a uh, crazy ego trip Right, and it makes him it makes him less sympathetic. That's the thing is they they wanted him to be sympathetic here. Yeah, but it would yeah. make him less sympathetic. But it would also give you kind of a, a clue into his motivation if they did it that way. So you could do that and then have him be a villain for villain's sake. But you got to remember this book is his book. This isn't Captain America, Spider Man, She Hulk, the Fantastic Four. They're guest stars in this book. Right, this is his book. So That's true. I can't yeah. I can't criticize them for wanting to make him essentially the protagonist of the book not the hero but the protagonist there is there is a, a definable difference between the two terms now the crown that he's wearing did he borrow that from the cowardly lion because it looks like he took a <laughs> vase and smashed it and, and then just took the top of it and put it on his head i like the poses of the kids in the splash page
0: that it's like those little kid poses especially the one that we don't see his face he's just got his feet sprawled out like he's listening to this kid Right, and then the other guy sitting on the uh, steps. I think that's young Scott Gardner going. Oh, shut up. <laughs>
2: Welcome to shut up. <laughs>
1: so. so who was the who was the artist? Or what was the page that you were saying that you thought at maybe the bottom of the of the second page
0: where he's crying? Does that mm-hmm. look like one of the like Sal Buscema or John John? I would say more John than Sal. But that's that's what I got from that picture. I was like, wow, that. You know, it, it just it guys stuck out to me, compared because it's really detailed compared to I mean it's the second page in and it's really one of the most detailed pictures so far in the book other than the splash and I think even more so because it's a close up. What do you guys think?
2: Now what is that that he got thrown at him? Was that camel but, crap?
0: Uh, no, it was dirt because he's saying he's a ruler, king of the earth. So the one so young Hassan says so I say we give him that earth.
1: Right. right. Oh, okay.
2: dirt. Dirt. Because I'm, I'm looking at him, I'm thinking he's, he's sitting there with turd on his face. But, but apparently not so.
1: No, it's just dirt. Because you can see the other kid bending down to also pick up a, a handful of dirt, potentially to throw it at him too.
2: Still not a very he, he could, nice thing could to do. You can see what I'm talking about. I think on this page though, as far as like the coloring, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of interestingly put together. Like the second panel doesn't have any color at all in the background. Nor does right. the one, the close-up of his face, you know, that Bill pointed to, but the other ones have kind of that pastel background, the blue or the yellow, right? And it, it's just, yeah, it's like, just kind of interestingly colored. I think it, it just makes your eye kind well, of roam all over the page, which I think is kind of cool.
0: Well, because the way like the sky is done, you know, with a blue, but it's actually broken up with like you know a splotch here and there to make it look like a cloud. Like it's almost like it's a watercolor in some yeah. spots.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of like a cross between like watercolors or maybe like colored markers or something.
0: Because
1: mm. it, it, yeah, the I, I think it's because the the graphic novels were on a different stock of paper, so they were they used a different uh process for doing the colors and all, and it and it gives it this I don't even know how to describe it, but it is an odd coloring process and some points of the bo- some points of the story i think it really works and there's other points where i find it very distracting so yeah, when we it, hit those
2: points be sure to point that out because i'm curious yeah yeah moving on then we go to uh ahmed at the university learning and knocking up uh his girlfriend <laughs> not a lot give there a, i mean it is you know you give get her the old background old... for him but i don't think too much of the story is moving along here it's just you know that, that's. Almost a stereotype for these stories here. I do like when he's uh, when he's presenting his uh, lineage, that there's the kid at the foreground of the picture who's laughing at him.
0: <laughs> yeah. And he
2: got, and he got a three-day suspension, too. Yeah, I don't get that, personally, but whatever.
0: <laughs> Why? Oh, so you would be that guy, huh? You'd be going, hey, hey, what a cube. Oh, yeah. Hey, hey, what a pyramid. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't see a three-day
2: suspension for it. Hey man, this is Egypt. A little, they're a little tougher, I guess so. But then he uh, he gets his job at American University at Cairo. I wonder if there is such a place. I want to say yes. And he gives a lecture there about how what is it, about mutants and how they, the fa- he, his theory is that the the pharaohs were mutants <laughs> and, and
0: that, that would later be that really be... incites the crowd though. <laughs> Yeah. Well, but that would later be kind of retconned or changed, and that would be where um, Apocalypse comes from.
2: Yeah,
1: I like that. When I when I saw that, because I didn't remember that part of the story, and I thought, hmm, that's interesting, because that kind of opens the door for Apocalypse. So I thought that was neat. Because in this particular case, as it relates to the Marvel Universe, he's, he's right. His theory was actually correct. Well, they say when I was reading the... Um... The actual biography
0: they have—it's uh, one of the things. Uh, it's uh, there's a section here. Unbeknownst to Abdul, however, the cult of the Living Pharaoh were actually a smaller sect of the Children of the Sun, a hereditary line of pharaoh worshipers created millennia ago by Ensnabinur when he ruled Egypt. Yep. So there you go.
2: So the Which mob, begs the, the question: I don't know how this guy got to his car ahead of the mob, right? But he does, oh. and they take off being chased and the page where they're running from the mob there's some real interesting artistic choices here as far as the inking and and the coloring
0: oh um american university in cairo is an independent english language research university located in cairo egypt established in 1919 Hmm.
2: so okay so we have some basis in fact there but on, on this page where they're running from the mob there are the the inking isn't solid it's almost done in a sketchy kind of way, with with lines, all, all uh, horizontal lines. Oh, when they're in the car, you I mean? Yeah, yeah. And it 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 creates give that it a feeling speed? of of frenetic speed. Yeah, yeah. And then the coloring is very monochromatic. They they either have yellow on them, or there's some that are orange. And then the bottom panel, when the crash is about to occur, it's kind of a pinkish red.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So you know, it's it's conveying, I think, the action. In the way that they're uh, coloring and inking it
0: and then when they're upside down it it, it, everything's like a when the car flips and they're both you've you've kind of got the speed flow lines and they're all white like they you know like it's that moment frozen in time they know you know so something really bad is about to happen and uh yeah and
2: the the wife just says in very small letters salami So I guess I guess while this all was all happening, she was getting hungry.
0: Well, the little baby got thrown from the uh, little salami was thrown from the uh, from the crash. Ah, it's so sad. And then Feline's still inside. And see, this is where he needs to turn into the Hulk. Dun, dun 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 dun. That's what I thought with this scene. Like he's trying to rip, rip you know, rip the car open. He's like, "Oh,
1: yeah. I can't save her." Yeah, I yeah, definitely because... was thinking of the the pilot to the Hulk. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because then he gets the power after his wife blows up and he gets angry and he blasts the crowd.
1: Well, what I want to know is the dude that shows up afterwards, the the one that shows up and tells him he's not insane and that he's much, much more than he thinks he is. He's going to show him his destiny and all that. Does that mean that this asshole just stood there and waited for his wife to die so that he could, you know, take him and show him the way? Because that's. That's
2: particularly messed you, you, up. You get the impression that they've been following him knowing that this was his destiny. Right. And they're just sitting by silently while all this is going on, waiting right. for his power to manifest itself, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's pretty messed
0: up. You know what? I, I didn't catch this before, but looking at it closer, when they're driving away with the speed lines and he's talking about, you know, um, the he's like, you know... You don't know the anger they can show, the hurt they can bring, and behind his head, you see in a solid color is the scene where they were throwing the dirt on him when he was a child.
2: Yeah, but mm-hmm. she should be fully aware of that. He's saying you don't yeah, know. she, she was, was there. there.
0: Yeah, right, right. She but was but there. no, but I'm saying that he's well. Yeah, but but he but that, like that's still plaguing in the back of his head. Like he's never really let that go.
2: Right. Yeah. Oh I mean, no, absolutely, I mean, he hasn't. And that that comes in further when he re reconnects with his childhood tormentor. Mm. Right. But uh I'm just thinking like back to the uh you know this this cult is following him around letting all this happen and I'm thinking, bad cult, bad. What did you do? <laughs> Go after each of them with a rolled up newspaper. Knock the fez right off their heads. So then no, then no. we have uh kind of a, a little bit of a montage page showing him as the living pharaoh being worshipped and There's one shot of him battling the X-Men and then one shot of him laying pretty much unconscious on the ground with the X-Men standing over him. Which, again, I don't think truly reflects the history because even then he turned into the living monolith and we'll just kind of sweep that under the carpet here.
1: This does Mm -hmm. beg the question of why the X-Men don't appear in the story. You know, why why the X-Men weren't um The team or one of the teams. Um, well, this is right called upon to. This is right
0: before X. This is when the X Men, I think, were dis had disappeared. Or no, um, I think in two years, a few years later.
2: Well, you figure this is after the first Secret Wars,
0: right? So yeah, they're still kind of hunted. Well, uh, I mean
2: the the story, the Manhattan portion of the story. How long a period of time do you figure that takes? A couple of hours. If the X-Men yeah. are, are in another part of the country, they just may not be able to get there in time. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's one thing, you know, that, that it, it seems to come up often where people say, oh, why, you know, why wasn't so-and-so there? Well, you know, <laughs> they, they, you can't be in all places at all times.
0: Right, so I just did a quick zip through the chronology and the stuff that was cover date, April 85, X-Men 192. All right, so this was...
2: This is slightly before the trial of Magneto.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they were still kind of incognito, I guess. So maybe not wanted to be seen too much.
1: Well, they are name checked later. Um, I think it's She Hulk that asked Cap, you know, who else should we call in on this? And she mentions uh, the Avengers, uh, I mean, the uh, X Men and the Defenders, which I thought was interesting as well, because the Defenders were still around at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need to get I'm Gargoyle
2: a... over here to fight him.
1: I'm just as glad that the X-Men aren't in it. But I I do think it's interesting, you know, just to note that, you know, this makes it look like he's their villain. You know what I mean? So it's interesting that that they don't come. They don't factor into this particular story later on. And that's that's me saying that with not a lot of awareness of the character, because I, you know, I, I initially went into this book back in, you know, whatever year I picked it up, 85, 86, whatever. You know, I like I say, I got it as a back issue. I went into this story not having any idea who the living monolith is. And I still don't really know who he is, you know, beyond the broad strokes. I, th- I think I've read you know one or two stories with him, not X-Men stories. So I, I still don't have a whole lot of familiarity with him but this book definitely you know to me creates the impression that he is an x-men
2: villain yeah well he you know he premiered as an x-men villain and i'm just thinking that marvel team up uh appearance if i remember right that was two parts one was with thor the other was with havoc because his power was linked to havoc at that point right you know if havoc was put out of commission then he would you know, it would it would enable him to become the living monolith.
0: Yeah, I remember them shoving him in like a, you know, a sarcophagus that cut off the power and then... Poof,
2: yeah, I don't know uh, how that up. connection was formed initially, but whatever the case may be, he certainly was more connected to the X-Men than anyone else. They were pen pals. Yeah. So the story moves on and he's in jail and he's got both of his hands uh, covered, mm-hmm. controlled. Must be hard to take a piss. It's to keep him from baiting. Yeah, it does have to be a problem. Uh, but, you know, they, they're covered in these iron metal manacles. Like, that itself couldn't be used as a weapon. You mm-hmm. can just punch the crap out of somebody with those things. Except you're on the other side of the bars from them.
0: Uh, How do you pick your nose? You don't. You smash yourself in the head. Oh, you use yeah. your toes. Notice he's not wearing any shoes.
2: <laughs> I'm very limber. So, so uh... I'll eat with my feet. Hassan, Hassan approaches him, and I'm just looking and says, you always were a dreamer, Abdul, and all I can think is, you always were a cube. <laughs> you were always a cube. <laughs> I, is it too, too uh, ironic or too coincidental that Hassan is his jailer slash tormentor? <laughs> nah, nah, it's comics. Okay, and basically, he uh, Abdul just kind of sits there, He's been working away at this, at these manacles, until the point where he can just explode through them, and he puts uh, Hassan through basically well into a wall.
1: Yeah, in bed. Now, how you would basically. survive that
2: is beyond me. Painfully. No, I think that would crush every bone in your body, and you're dead. I do not <laughs> think a body can survive being thrown into, literally, into a cement wall. I can't believe they took. Shh. I can't believe they take the whole wall with them. Yeah, well, he, right. he's thrown in it so deeply that that you have to take the wall him to remove it. We can't get him out. Take the whole him. wall. What? He doesn't. He doesn't hit the wall and then fall down. He becomes embedded in it. Again, yep. I don't think a human body can survive that. But we'll just go with it again for the comics theory. And interesting that you know he then uses his power to burst, break a hole in the ceiling, and immediately the cultists are there to, to jump in. Like, what were they now, doing out there?
1: Now these couple of pages here, like the the next. Three pages essentially. This is uh, some area where I think the coloring
2: looks—it
1: just looks odd.
2: I would—I would tend to agree with you. There's a bleed in the
1: colors that that just looks funny.
2: It, it's you know we have some real violence going on here, and I think the pastel colors tend to go against that thought. Right. And I think maybe that—that's what gives it the odd look. That it, it—the it, the colors should be more stark on these pages.
1: Yeah. especially the the bottom of the panel or the bottom panel of the page where all the cops are getting shot yeah where all the cops are getting shot you know that that looks like uh,
2: a page in a young kid's coloring book that's badly colored yeah
1: it really does and you know one of the cops is taking a direct blast right in the face but because of the weird coloring it's it doesn't really have the impact it should and it's and it's kind of hard to make it out well, you can see his headstone thrown back, but if you look at it real quick, it looks like his
0: head's been blown off.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. And so two pa- two panels before that, we've got, uh, I guess, Popeye was working for...
1: Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Infidels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's got a squinky? I do like the art, though. I really do. Because uh, I-, I can only assume it's this particular team. You know, the inker the- the on this, but mark silvestri i like his stuff but he's very hit and miss with me but with this particular one uh this is hidden i really like the art in this particular book so i can i can only assume that uh that it's the inker on this that's really you know really shoring it up
2: but the, the inking seems to be done with a nice light touch yeah which sometimes i'm not crazy about that if they don't you know if they don't clean up the artwork enough but in this it seems like he cleaned it up just enough And again, for most of the pages, I kind of like the the coloring choices. Uh, I do agree with you, though, on these couple that they could have used some more bold colors. Right. But I still like the way it looks overall.
1: Now, the the page where we go to, where we cut to New York, there's something wonky in the printing process. I meant to look at my actual paper copy of this to see if this carries over to my copy, and I, I failed to do so. Yeah, because the city is very blurry. There's a there's a blur to the entire page that almost makes this look like you're supposed to get out your 3D glasses or something. It has like a double image thing going on. It's real I mean, maybe faint,
3: but maybe it's they were just going...
1: enough to make me, you know, to, to, it's just blurry enough that I kept checking to make sure I had my glasses on while I was reading it. You well know? kind of like, It kind of gives it the illusion of depth, I think. Yeah, yeah because
0: Because look in the center of the picture. The center of the picture is in focus. It's the outer edges that are blurry. Right. So kind of like I don't know, it kind of makes it look like a three-dimensional image. And then the one where uh Salami is walking through the cl- <laughs> crowd, she's the only one that's actually in color somewhat.
2: Yeah, it looks like she's she's in a group of stone statues. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I right. like that look on that that particular panel. Yeah. That looks like it's a scene out of uh, the Dr. Uh, the uh yellow submarine cartoon. Right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs>
1: Where all, the, where all the citizens have been bonked yeah, yeah you're she's right she's in Pepperland <laughs>
2: <laughs> unbonk yourself yeah so she goes to the, uh, the Baxter building where she's confronted by cultists you shall not pass oh and God. rescued by the human torch I um, liked that part yeah I, I, I think that's well done and I think the coloring actually works well there yeah
1: (laughs) coloring on the torch looks really good because for a change it's not just simply a red man with some lines on him because over time i've gotten really weary of that particular portrayal of the torch it's like can you not make him look like he's actually just on fire and in this particular one you know with the limitations of art of the day they do a really good job of that. He actually does look like a person on fire. So that's, that's pretty neat until the, that one close-up image of him, um, right yeah. where he's fried the guns. That one's a little bit cartoony looking. I think he looks more like, um, uh, Oh, who's that Dr. Strange villain? Dread- Dormaboo? Yeah. Dormaboo. Yep. Yeah. I do some of the dialogue in this. I really like some of the dialogue Cause there's a great one. It's the bottom of that page where, Johnny has rescued her. He's very cocky. He's very much in character as the human torch. You know, his power is, you know, so much greater than their power. he runs them off, doesn't even bother to pursue them, just runs them off. And then he comes to land and he, he tells her, he says, you're welcome. And she says, you do not understand. If I do not speak with a Fantastic Four very soon, the entire world might be destroyed. And he just sighs and goes again. I love that. That's great. That's a great piece <laughs> of dialogue. I really like that.
2: I, it just I like shows this, his
1: cockiness and, and the fact that, you know, world threats are, you know, they're a daily occurrence to these guys.
2: Yeah. I
1: like the costume from this era.
2: Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Just, this yeah. was a burn renovation yeah. to the costume, if I remember yeah, right. This is,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, this is after they came back from, they were trapped in the negative zone for like months. And when they came back to the real world from the negative zone, their, their colors uh, reversed on their uh, costumes. This is where, so Sue is pregnant at this time. Um, or would either become pregnant. pregnant. Well, she's either pregnant or she has just miscarried. At this point, depends on where we are. And well, because what, what, they had they because they conceived in
0: the negative zone, and that's right. why she had the miscarriage.
1: Right. What what issue of FF was was concurrent with this? Uh, uh, hold stands. on. Let me look. Bam. She, bam. She she miscarried in what was it? Like? Oh, it was it was two seventy five. Is yeah is, yeah. I've, because that's this
0: takes place. This this story takes place between
1: 275 and, um, and she miscarried in like 281, right? Something like that.
0: I, I want to say yeah, like the later 260s or 280.
2: That was the story with Doc Ock, right? Yeah.
1: Yes. I'm looking it up right now. See if I can remember. I want to say it was like 281.
2: Some of some of the some of the, ca- the camera like angles that. That. that Michelini chooses here, or that uh, who who drew it? I don't remember. Silvestri. Sorry uh are, are kind of interesting like he's got that one shot in the middle where it's kind of looking up at salome's butt and then you go to the next page he has another panel in the middle there is where it's also looking up at her butt so I, I don't know i don't know if that was totally intentional or not but just seems <laughs> to be kind of interesting
1: yeah where johnny she... la- johnny's landing
2: and she's got this yeah
1: uh-huh so she miscarried in uh, in two sixty seven. So even earlier than I thought. So so that would already this be in the must past be at this point. yeah. This is post. That oh, must be why she has the okay. hair, the different hair. Because I remember her changing her hair, mm. and I think maybe she changed her hair in response to the miscarriage. I think something like that. I I, I can't remember. Because this is also right around the time that she became... Um, the Invisible
0: Woman or Malice? Well, the
1: Invisible Woman, but also Malice. Yeah, Malice is what I was thinking of, yeah. So, yeah, that was right in this this particular time, too. I'm not sure if I can... Let's see.
2: So, just to, yeah. uh, while, while you're looking up more, at this point, Salome has given him the spiel that, uh, you know, the, the Pharaoh is crazy and that he's trying to subjugate the entire world and that she's decided that he's out of control and she's rebelling against him which right. is a bunch of crap yep. uh, and crap, i I, crap, I think this crap. is one of the points where the story got a little heavy-handed because they have to have you know i i suspected from the very start that this was his daughter from the first shot well, he yeah. that that i, crossed my I mind.
1: suspected it was his daughter from the first time you see her but i didn't suspect her oh, so i, I did. was buying all of this right up to the point where she uh, and, you know, it's it's the narration that kind of tips the hand, but it says... Yeah, well, that's know, what I'm the, saying. It's, it's a little of...
2: heavy-handed. I think they didn't need yeah. to do that. You know, the well, warmth yeah, of flattery you... and the subtle... Ch- the, which right. In the warmth of flattery, the subtle chill of menace is lost. You could have done without that, especially with the evil look on her face that they're showing there. Plus, just yeah. the heavy-handed way she had She-Hulk left out and everything. You knew something was going on. I
0: like the face that Johnny makes when, when she's like, oh, could you leave She-Hulk here? Right. And Johnny's
1: like, hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, just forget that I saved her life this afternoon. I love that. Humph. He's he's in great character in this. I really like that. I wonder <laughs> if uh, if uh, Michelini ever ever did a uh, a lengthy run on FF. I can't remember if he did or not. You know, if he ever had any um, you know prolonged experience writing the FF. I have to look that up sometime. So
0: this next sequence, <laughs> I'm like, really, really. It's what? His, their, their um, I don't know, his lair looks like...
1: The Death Star.
0: Well, the Death Star, or I was thinking more of of uh, Forbidden Planet with the with the Krell civilization. <laughs> I mean, look
2: at that thing, man. It goes down for miles. Yep. Yeah, I was thinking Death Star, personally. I could see Obi-Wan on the other side of that pole.
0: <laughs> Turning off the tractor beam so they can get away. <laughs> he's got the hangar bays with all the. I mean, come on, man. He's got the hangar bays with all the ships, and every time
2: he walks in a room, they're all bowing, master. Except the one room where he has the giant hand Solo Block. and Knight. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's he's still got Hassan embedded in the cement wall. <laughs> come on, that you know page what? where
1: that page where Hassan, that panel where Hassan is going, you can change the rules, but you're still just a player in a game. He looks so much like Abe Lincoln right there. It's not even funny. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, he does. Help me, Kirk. Hurry <laughs> 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 <you> on, dudes! <laughs> he could almost be Jonah Hex if he has a little scar on yeah, his, side of his face. Al- there. Yeah,
1: almost. You're right. And it's uh, oh, funny. The
0: picture prior looks like insane Lex Luthor.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of this that I thought... Um, that he looked like luthor especially the the prison sequence in the beginning i thought he looked a lot like lex luthor
2: so it, it looks it almost looks like a high school play when he comes out to talk to all the people <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming to the pep rally today ladies and gentlemen the living pharaoh you got the dad in the back that's checking his watch how long is this damn thing anyway <laughs> And this is the point where Salami executes her end of the plan. <laughs> Salami and the FF are transported to Egypt's sands. She Hulk. Well, it's funny because Reed is
0: like, he's like, "Hmm, that's odd." This uh, electronic circuits uh, in, in this component seem to have been thrown together at random. As far <laughs> as I can tell, they serve no purpose. At- it's used pinball machine parts.
2: <laughs> Tony Stark put it together in a cave.
1: <laughs> Using
2: scraps. <laughs> love the way he says not, that, <laughs> yeah, that is. <laughs> isn't it though isn't it just a cliche to leave the she-hulk behind so that she can be part of the battle against them
1: well i don't uh, think so because leave her she not, poses
2: no threat to us you know that well, she's kind of
1: not thing. she's not cosmically powered which is well, why i understand why
2: they don't want her for their own purposes but why leave her now that she knows what's going on sort of Because they don't think anybody's smart enough to figure out how to get back there. That
0: they think pretty much once they steal them, they're done.
2: I understand that. That, But isn't isn't that arrogance and that particular plot point kind of cliche?
1: Mm-hmm. I I don't think so.
2: How many stories not, not has a, it been in, where, where they leave the one behind? He poses no threat to us. Let's leave him behind. And he ends up being the one leading okay. the revolution. I, I, I
1: see what you're saying. And I kind of agree with you. Except in this particular instance... Well, um, she,
0: doesn't, she doesn't do anything other than fight him later. It's
2: actually yeah. Spider-Man. Yeah. That actually she doesn't that. do anything except fight him later.
1: <laughs> but, I mean, Jen is you know, she's she's massively super powerful and everything, but she knocks him in, down. At, at this point in the game... And she's green and she's hot. But anyway. Has, has right. he even made the decision? I don't think he's even made the decision yet that he's coming to... Yeah, he hasn't even made the decision yet that he's coming to America, so he doesn't <laughs> foresee actually having to go up against her in battle. So I'm thinking it's not cliched because he's thinking threat in the sense of... She's smart enough to figure out where they've been abducted to and follow them there. And let's face it, love She-Hulk, she's not smart enough to figure this out. That's why they get Spider-Man later on. Yeah, but so, you know what?
2: No matter when, how good of an argument you make against my point, I'm the editor and I'm going to cut it out and I'm going to look right <laughs> right. When you what said, is, When you said, yeah, coming to America. <laughs> no, I, well, I,
0: I, I, all
2: I could think of was Neil Diamond, Diamond. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I was thinking of James Come Brown singing Living in America. but i I, to me i i do i i get your point but i still think it's cliche and i still feel like you know not only do they leave her behind but they purposely manipulated to leave her behind right because she wasn't
1: essential to his plans
2: yeah and if she should have been essential to no
1: because if they
0: brought her to the citadel they had plans in place to neutralize the, fan, the three Fantastic Four with the cosmic radiation, they probably wouldn't be able to neutralize
2: She-Hulk, which is why they didn't bring her. Right. Except if they had figured out a way to do it, and then they could have actually had a good plan. Anyway. Living with the Pharaoh. I, I do Get see there. what you're saying, but I I don't know. I, I got a I gotta
1: side on the side of, I, I think he's done the prudent thing here because, for one... She has no idea where they've been abducted to. And again, I don't I think he's banking on the fact that she's not smart enough to figure it out and follow, which she's not. But if nothing else, you're leaving
2: her in a position to call for the cavalry.
1: That's true. But I'm also thinking, as Bill said, that if they had brought her along, then you've got somebody who's one notch down in power level from the Hulk to contend with. And they don't want to have to contend with that, especially since they, she's not integral to their plans or to his plan. He doesn't need her. And I think it would be much more, uh, you know, there's just so much more he would have to do uh, contingency wise if he had brought her trying to contain her or eliminate her as opposed to just leaving
2: her behind, I think was not Maybe not necessarily
1: choice. the smartest, you know, smarter thing to
2: do. Maybe just the easier thing to do. Well, that's, I would go with the easier thing, but I think the incorrect thing. Anyway, the are brought to Egypt where the Pharaoh gives the order to kill them, even though he doesn't really want them killed. And again, we
0: have a gratuitous butt shot this time of uh, Invisible Woman.
1: Wow. wow. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me of those yoga pants all the girls are wearing now and again we got
0: Hassan there behind him like he's uh, Frankenstein's monster uh, I do wish,
1: I do wish it, his name tag had said chop that would have made my day <laughs> that's his last name Hassan Chop
2: so we, we cut you back think, to the Baxter building where the you think anybody
0: gets that joke they have to get
2: that yeah, joke I, I, I think it. even Russell gets that one okay
0: <laughs> down 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 go 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 mine 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 Rich, I'm rich. I'm a happy miser.
2: Oh, sorry. So
1: All right, I get that she's mad, but why does She-Hulk smash Reed Richards' control panel? His, I guess that's the
2: intercom. Yeah. Yeah. No. There's no. It's, it's dumb. It's just. That's just property damage. <laughs> and she's uh, gonna
1: smash something. She should smash the girl, not not Reed's place.
2: And actually, it's poor planning for Salome to think she's gonna throw a chair through the window. Because if you're up that high. Where she gonna? Well, there is a there is a ladder outside the window. Yeah, but if right. you're up that high, you got to think they're not going to just have regular glass, especially on a building housing the Fantastic Four. Cabal It's not going to be a little thin plate of glass that you're going to just smash a chair through. I I, I think you know it, it's it's foolish to even think that you're going to smash through it. Even even Bruce Willis would have had to shoot it a few times before he threw the
1: chair. <laughs> yeah,
2: right. That's, that part of the plan is uh, it was not solid. And then she's basically trapped with the She-Hulk at that point, and we cut back to the FF battling the hordes of the Living Monolith. Uh, the, the, living the Who is the whoas? Oh, the hordes. Oh, hordes. Oh, the whoas. We just we just left the Who. Look at the guy, the guys,
0: um, the f- back back where they're fighting uh, after she Hulk's, You know, get where she's co- co- going in to um, get salami, and then. Uh, <laughs> The guy that's at the bottom of the page. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> he looks like
2: something from Pink Floyd's The Wall to me. I don't... <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Look at Reed Richards' hand all the way to the right. Oh yeah,
0: it's all spread out. Like yeah,
2: that's kind of cool. That is cool. I didn't even notice that before. That is cool.
0: That's Seuss very creepy. basically
1: just snap some dude's neck <laughs> with a big <laughs> chock. Chock! Yep. Yeah, this is pretty neat. I, I like this battle sequence.
2: Yeah. So you got some good action here showing the, how the Fantastic Four would battle a horde. Right. And and they're I mean they're generally successful for the most part until
0: uh... Right, but that's not the whole point. It's because he's looking for he's pushing them to find out what he needs to like, making them exert themselves so he can basically shut them down.
2: Yeah, he's looking to calibrate his machinery. Mhm. And and then we, we you have a sequence here. Towards the end of the battle, after the Human Torch burns through the tank thing, uh, again some interesting coloring choices because between the Pharaoh's robes and the headpieces on his followers, it's a very pink page. Right, but it looks kind of cool. Again, mm-hmm. I, I, again, this is one where I kind of like the uh, the pastel look that they have going. And then yeah. he he lets his Ankh put them out, and they're all unconscious.
0: You know, I just noticed his he used to wear green and now he's wearing red or pink. Mm-hmm. Cuz just just picked that up. I didn't notice that.
2: But when they have the flashback early in the book, it's it's him wearing the green.
0: Right. And so it's right. not it's yeah. not
2: just that they did away with it. You know, they didn't they didn't retcon it out. They just changed it. Mhm. So then after, after he defeats them, we get to the point where Salome is ready to be executed cuz she's left alone as per their protocols
0: somebody's going to cook the salami. Oh, sorry.
2: but this, I, I know, thought this, was this, one of this the most powerful cool. points
1: of the book. Yeah. What's that? I thought this was one of the, the most powerful points in the story
2: right here. Really? Well, initially I thought it was going to, I thought it was going to go cliche and that he was going to spare her. Mm. But then when the son but... starts to taunt him yeah. and he taunts him into incinerating his own daughter, To prove that he's a man and not a wimp that's that's some that's a powerful sequence and it shows the i I think the weakness of character that the pharaoh has
1: i like that that last panel the the just crazed look on his face when he makes the decision to do it and you can see at that point he's he's basically just come unhinged but i also like the artistic element of putting the tear in his eyes so while he has you know just an an insane maniacal grin on his face where he's basically turning just enough to lock eyes with hassan to show him i'm gonna do it that one tear also says something you know it it it, it's yeah i think that's powerful i thought this part of the story was was excellent
2: but then to kind of emphasize that he's not rational he's blaming everyone else for the fact that she died. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though he's the one who ultimately pressed the button.
1: Yeah, because from here on out in the rest of the story, every time he refers to his daughter's death, it's, you know, you people did this. But no, it was him. He's the one that pressed the button.
2: So when, once he incinerates her, he makes use of his machinery to, I guess, dis- now is he siphoning the cosmic power from the Fantastic Four? Yeah, I, but I, I believe that's what's going on there. Right,
0: right. but... And he, but before we get that, after She-Hulk looks on after Salami's been roasted, and there's just a pile of ash there, and and the 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 two shots to where the living Pharaoh still has this fist on the button, and he, and like he's like, see, you know, see you bully, I'm not a wimp, and he looks up and he has tears in his eyes. Right. You know, it's that's you know, but then that's when he flips the script and he's like, no, it's done. Yeah,
1: the well, time he's pretty much psychotic Pat, but, yeah. at this
0: point. Yeah, he's he's had a break.
1: Well I couldn't help but notice that it does not show what became of Hassan. Did he no. kill him? I don't know. You know? No, I, he... I
2: would I would extrapolate that he did, but we never do see anything to confirm that. Right. No body, no death. He's just still stuck in a wall somewhere. Now the the scene where he actually becomes the living monolith? That is a beautiful page. Yeah, that's cool. If I, that's one of the ones where if I could own a page of art, that's one of the ones I would love to own and have that framed and hanging up. That is really cool. And it almost, it almost looks like it's printed from the pencils. Like, it, yeah. it, lo- it almost looks like it's penciled and then colored with color pencils.
1: Yeah, color pencils or watercolors, one of the two. Yeah,
2: and but, it,
0: and you but it's very, three, very
2: effective.
0: You get the three inset little pictures of the each member of the ff
2: in he agony in white light yeah as the energy is crackling out of them i guess
1: yeah uh, i took it that he was he was siphoning off a measure of their cosmic power to jumpstart his own ability to to naturally absorb cosmic power because that was the thing here is and I'd always wondered this as a kid. So take uh, take the Human Torch, I thought was the best example. As a kid, I was always a little bit struck by, okay, so the Human Torch burns. But what what in him is burning? And at what point does it burn out? So I understood, you know, they went into space, they were unprotected, they got bombarded by, by cosmic rays. And I always assumed, I guess, that somehow it was something cosmic that was in him that was burning but you would think eventually you know all fuel sources eventually wear out so you would think that eventually he would use that up and here it's established that they don't use it up because they are continually absorbing ambient co- cosmic rays and basically refueling so now their bodies are are living cosmic ray uh batteries and you know essentially and so his problem is that he is too, but either his ability to be a cosmic battery either never uh, never fully materialized or something has happened to inhibit it. And so he's using them to jumpstart his own ability to, uh, to then absorb cosmic rays as well. And it's the cosmic rays that allow him to grow and to... Uh, uh, assimilate more mass and become larger and larger. So I don't know that he's truly siphoning them, but I, I think he's definitely like borrowing a measure of their power in order to kind of jumpstart himself. It's almost like, like in a car. You know what I mean? No, that, I, that's I got how, the impression that's kind that of that how it's how
2: not I it. just a jumpstart that it is a continuous siphoning process because in his rage, he blames them for the death of his daughter and says you know, it's people like you that Caused her death, but he has to leave them alive because he needs to continue to get the power from them.
1: Right, right.
2: If, if you were to kill the three of them, he would go back to just being the living pharaoh.
1: At this point, yes. yes, yeah. But eventually, he does get to a point where then he's, and I'm not sure if the if the story really makes that clear. And I think somebody does make a reference to it that essentially he has past the point. Uh, where he doesn't need them anymore but I don't know that you know it's clearly defined what that point ever was
2: Yeah I don't but think there, they, I don't think they but, really clarify that at any point yeah
1: but there, there definitely had to be a line at some point because at the end of the story when he's defeated he doesn't just snap back. So he's he's now crossed that thresh, threshold where not only does he not need to absorb any more from them, he doesn't need them anymore, but also he now he can't undo what's been done either, which is,
2: again, adds a certain tragic element to it, I think. Yep. So he comes to the realization that he's not going to kill them. He's going to destroy their home as a memorial for Salome. And it's off to New York, where... Oh, what a surprise. The She-Hulk is calling Captain America. (laughs) (laughs) She calls Captain America. He decides of the people available. Spider-Man is the best choice to help them. Hmm. And he makes his way to the Daily Bugle, knowing that Spider-Man has some sort of connection there.
1: That shot of him walking in on Jonah is great. I, I love that panel. Where he's just standing in the doorway... He's all buff. He's holding his shield. He's got his other hand on the door, and and Jonah's just like Captain America. That that's a great shot. What do you guys think of that one? <laughs> yeah.
2: I think as as disrespectful as Captain as Jonah can be at times, I like the way he acts with Captain America. I'm I'm surprised they didn't have him like salute him or something.
0: Right. He well, he offers him, him a scar from Havant. I mean
1: Virginia. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great piece of dialogue too.
0: And, and then he's then, like. I'm looking for one of your employees, a Peter Parker. And then he gets, Jonah makes the hump face, the hump face that the human torched earlier. Hmm. Yeah.
1: Now at this point, Cap's come there looking for Peter because Peter's linked to taking pictures of Spider-Man. Parker was in the room two seconds ago. Jonah turns around to call to Parker. Parker's gone. Cap walks outside and there's Spider-Man on a light pole. Captain America is no dope. So at this point, you think he knows?
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I also too. think he doesn't care.
1: Right. No, I don't think he would ever out him or anything like that. But I, no, I, know. I
2: don't. I think it's beyond not outing him. I think he literally doesn't care. <laughs> right. The only but, the only reason he would care is if it gave him a tactical advantage in some sort of battle. I think he respects right. Spider-Man, so he would certainly never hurt him. But if but, some there's, reason there's... he needed to get in touch with Spider-Man in the future, he would use that knowledge to help him get a hold of him. But that would be about it.
1: There have been other instances in comics with certain other characters where, over time, I've I've come to the belief that they know things and they just choose, for whatever reason, not to you know to keep it a secret, to not you know not to disclose that information. Sometimes even to the person that they know the thing about. Well, I think the uh, most clear
2: th- example of that is
1: Commissioner Gordon and Commissioner uh, Gordon. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, uh, or, over or time, Joe I Robbie played, and Spider-Man. Yeah. Over time, I really have come to subscribe to that theory that uh, that Commissioner Gordon knows. He just, you know, he doesn't say anything, and he doesn't say anything to Batman, but I, I think he knows. And I think he'd be pretty, uh, a pretty shitty cop not to know at this point, <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then they, you... they eventually gave you that with Mary Jane and Spider-Man that she knew all along but didn't say anything. Right.
3: Which well, that, that, you was, know, that
2: was a retcon though because there were instances where it would have made no sense if she did know and they let it be, you know, the, the retcon was that she knew like all along, like from the, when she very first met him. Right. And there were, there were so many occasions where something's going on and, you know, he's he's fumbling with an excuse to get out of there and she's, you know, putting his feet to the fire a little bit that if she really knew she would have just said, you know, go, you got to get out of here. <laughs> I remember an issue, I think it was an issue of
1: Spider-Man, where where Spider-Man ran into Cap at the airport and basically introduced him to Mary Jane. Yes,
2: I and, remember that one.
1: And came so close to essentially saying this is my wife. And I really liked that because while neither one of them came right out and said anything, you almost get the impression that, you know, Spider-Man is cool with Cap figuring it out and, and Cap has probably already figured it out and is not going to say anything to Spider-Man to make him uncomfortable, but he knows exactly who Mary Jane is and why he's introducing him the way that he is. And I loved that sequence. I thought that that's class. That's really cool. You know, so it's, it's a little wink and nod between them, but neither one of them is going to come right out and say it. And I thought that was pretty cool. I can't remember what issue that is. I want to say that was right around 9 11, but I really don't remember. I don't think it was the actual 9 11 issue, but no, I think it was, it was not right the around 9 11
2: issue. And, and there was something else. I do remember the issue you're talking about, though. There was something where Dr. Doom was also in the airport mm-hmm. and there was ipl- diplomatic immunity going on. That's right. Yeah. Diplomatic immunity. Oh, Except yeah. it was not Lethal Weapon
1: 2. Spider Man's great in this. I, I really like Spider Man. I love the way he looks. Because he's a little more, he's a little more mature in this. He's a little bigger. He's a little beefier. And As I going kind of like beefy that. Beefy
0: looking, yeah,
1: yeah. But I, I like that though, because by this time he shouldn't be, you know, the the spindly little, you know, teenage Spider-Man. He's, you know, because by this point he was what? I don't know if he was married yet, but you know, he.
2: So to, yeah, to I'm my mind sure he was married at this
1: point. Was he married at this point? If,
2: if he wasn't, it was close to it.
1: It was close, yeah. So, you know, to my mind at this point, Spider Man's in his in his, you know, probably mid twenties, maybe even late twenties. And so I think he should look more like he looks right here, especially after, you know, theoretically all the years he's been web slinging and everything, he, he should be, you know, bigger and, and older and beefier and all that. So I, I kinda I liked the look of him here. I, I thought this was really cool. He's still a bit leaner than Cap and the other heroes, but he's also not you know, he's not a child anymore, and I like that.
2: Yeah, I agree.
1: Because this is my Spider Man. If you know what I mean.
2: Yep. And so we have a mysterious SST landing at the airport back when SSTs Uh, were still in New York.
1: Now notice the name of the airport in that bottom panel.
2: Is it they miss they misspelled the airport?
1: Yeah. They misspelled Lacordia Now here is this issue, you know. Again, it, you know, New York is a player in the actual issue, especially with that cover image and everything. And the villain comes to New York and lands at the airport, and they miss. Well, <laughs> you know, and it's produced could, by a bunch of New Yorkers. It's it's. I just that, that could
0: be a lowercase a. Mm, uh, I just blew it up, like really blew it up. It could be a lowercase. So, in other words, uh, in, that, in
2: that box where every other letter is uppercase. Oh, no, I, I, I case agree. Letter. I
0: agree, but that could be, if you look, if you really blow it up, it's not the same height as the other. It's not the same height as the L and the G.
1: Yeah, like, eh. I, I see what you're saying, but still, it it's you know. I think in, you're, in you're, the you're, you're the trying to give them a defense,
2: be, but I'm going to say no.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the, the size that it rests. would be in the actual printing, in the actual issue... You couldn't tell that it would. Lo- it looks like an O, and so it looks. It looks like a typo, and I'm just. I'm shocked somebody there didn't catch that. There are
2: one, two, three, four other A's in there, and they're all uppercase.
1: Right. Oh,
0: I'm not arguing that, but I'm just saying. I mean, every time I've seen Laguardia, I think it's
2: been a lowercase A. I yes, think. but then the letters after the G are also lowercase.
0: I I agree. I agree. I'm just. <laughs> I'm. I'm trying to no prize it.
1: Yeah, and you are failing. <laughs> <laughs> now I love the the panel where <laughs>
0: where the, the
3: living monolith
1: is smashing out of the airplane air, airplane, and he's going heathen heathen maggots, and he goes on this whole thing. And the one guy turns around; he, it's like he's looking at us, the reader, and he just Breaking goes. You wall. want us to fight that? <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah. Exactly, breaking the
2: fourth wall.
0: So he's 30 feet tall. So was he, like, laying down, cramped in that plane the whole way over? Yeah,
2: he must have been. <laughs> That's I was picturing that, too.
0: Can I get some in-flight service, please? A little, little cramped. Can somebody scratch my nose, please? I can't move my arm.
1: Oh, Charlie horse. Charlie horse. Ow, ow, ow. <laughs> I got to go to the bathroom. Ooh. Now, that panel where he's walking away on the next page that says it isn't enough and he's walking away this was the first time of many times in this book that i thought man i hope he's got something on underneath that uh whatever that is if that killed he, was, if he was a
2: true scotsman he wouldn't
1: <laughs> right <laughs>
0: <laughs> he's gonna give those new yorkers an eyeful you could just play the lonely man theme when he's walking away
2: so it's it's time, time for the battle to be joined and Love Cap,
1: the shot of Cap's shield bouncing off his cheekbone right there. That's
2: that's cool. Yes. Well,
0: that's first, well, Spider-Man gets a little, oh, no, it was before this when he kind no, of that's, like. That's uh, the
2: beginning of, that's when they first confront Yeah, him, that's right. Is the, yeah. the shield. Even in the panel before that with his fist going like right through, I guess, two sides of the building at once. Right. Which, depending on how high up on the building he is, uh, you know, the lower he is, the more likely it is that it would collapse the entire building.
0: Now, do you notice right. that
2: like some of the art has changed a little bit? We, well, well I
0: think it's, that's we have explaining... much starker I mean we had a lot of the pastels before when we were in Egypt. That seems to have faded now. Right. And we've got it seems like we have more primary colors. It just looks sharper now. Well, there than are it did one,
2: yeah. two, three, Earlier. four, five different oh, excuse me, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different colorists. Oh, there are?
1: Mm. That Um, I didn't catch. uh, Is that right? One,
2: two, three, four, five background anchors. This this was a many hands project.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking that that it felt very much like a many hands project. Mm -hmm. So that actually makes sense. Yeah.
2: So yeah, Yeah, once once we transfer from Egypt to the United States, the coloring becomes much more traditional comic book coloring. Right, and I think it's better for it too. So I, yeah, like I, like, the... I like the pastels in Egypt. I think it's well served to not have that now when the battle is is hitting a more uh, fre- frenetic pace. Right. Um, but while we're getting the background story, I think the pastels worked very well. I, I kind of liked that. But again, I'm, I'm good with it changing at this point. I think they they made some really solid choices in how they handled this book.
1: Now, in light of the of the Captain America Civil War movie, I can't help but wonder why Spider-Man didn't try to wrap up the living monolith's legs. But it got me to thinking, have we ever seen him do that in the comics? Has he ever wrapped up the legs of, of you know, like a giant like this and, and tripped him up? I bet you could find it somewhere. Probably. I can't yeah. think of an
2: example of it offhand, but I would bet if you looked in enough books, you'll find one.
1: Because he tries to just web his feet to the ground, which doesn't work at all. He just mm-hmm. just tears it like tissue paper. I like he says, uh, like an old wad of hubba-bubba. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a reference that's going to be increasingly dated as the years go by, because I don't think they make hubba-bubba anymore, do so they? So it's an
2: old wad of bubble yum.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Big League Chew.
0: Remember that when you could buy the... Oh, the- Yeah. The gum in the big pouch like I it was... I think
1: they still sell that, don't they? Like it was tobacco yeah, they and you'd pull sell it out it. strings yeah. of the
2: gum and you'd shove it in your mouth. So, after so. Cap hits him with the shield, basically Spider-Man takes on the offensive and quickly realizes he can't do a thing against this guy.
1: Yep.
2: Brock. Brock. Bro. I, I both like and dislike that at the same time. Yeah. Because on the one hand, it makes sense that this is a threat that's just beyond his power level. But... As someone who's read Spider-Man for you know well over forty years now, he would then use his intellect to find some other way to go after him, which he eventually kind of does here. Mm-hmm. But he kind of gives up on the on the home front battle pretty quickly. So I, well, I, I you know, I like I it, but I that don't. Up.
1: I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel you. I know exactly what you mean because I kind of had that thought too. I the way I justified it to myself was that. I don't think he was ever entirely comfortable with Cap's decision of we, we have to sacrifice what potentially could be happening to the fantastic. We, basically we can't go rescue the fantastic four right now because there's this, uh, larger menace going on in New York. So they make that decision not to, because prior to this, and and I don't know that this is necessarily part of the synopsis. I don't think it was that, They bring in Spider-Man because they want to know exactly what was that energy pyramid, what happened to the Fantastic Four. And so they bring Spider-Man in, and Spider-Man basically uh, makes short work of it and is able to recreate the teleportation. So basically take everybody to where the Fantastic Four are. And he's about to send the She-Hulk there when they get the call saying, hey, the living monolith's on the rampage in New York. And so Cap nixes their plans to go rescue the Fantastic Four, uh, deciding instead to go battle the living monolith. And I kind of justified it that maybe Spider-Man was never entirely comfortable with that. He didn't want to argue with Captain America, of course, but this is probably sitting in the back of his mind is what's happening to my friends. And he gets to this point in the battle where he realizes he's kind of outclassed. And I agree with you that You know, if this were, say, an issue of Spider-Man or or a storyline in Spider-Man, we would probably see him just simply shift gears from trying to brawl to trying to use his brain. But in this instance, I I think he realizes, well, the battle's well in hand. You've got She-Hulk there. You've got Cap and all that. I can't do much of anything, so let me go back to the original problem. Let me free up the Fantastic Four. Plus hopefully if they're alive and everything that puts them back in play to come back and, and rejoin the battle against this guy. So that's kind of where I'm thinking that it went, but I, I agree with you. I'm never really comfortable when the hero just says, well, I, I can't do anything. Cause I've seen um, other stories like that too. Um, I can remember some older, like justice league of America stories, like Batman, for example, where he's like, well, this is beyond me. And I'm like, you're Batman. <laughs> you know." <laughs> How is this beyond you? So yeah, I know I know what you mean.
2: Yeah, well, whether you agree with his decision or not, Spider-Man leaves and uses the transportation beam, teleportation beam, whatever you want to call it, to follow the Fantastic Four to Egypt. Now, he before ends we up get battling to that point, a horde of followers.
1: I-, I wanted to know what did you think of uh, of She-Hulk casually flinging cars.
2: I think that's within her power level,
1: I think that's yeah. awesome. I love that shot where she's just casually one handing and she's lining up like a like a javelin throw or something like she's she's ready to chuck the next one at him i I just love that I okay when you cool. first brought it up,
2: I thought you were saying you know that that she was doing it too easily
1: no no, no i I think that's
2: I think it's great.
1: I think that's cool i I love the casual use of what's got to be just titanic strength. I think that's really neat. Yeah, the I the
2: only, that. I guess, thing, you know, as far as the physics of it go, if you lifted up the car like that, it would probably, you know, the part you're holding would probably break off from the weight of the right. rest of the car. But mm-hmm. I think I can overlook that.
1: Well, that next panel on the, on the next page, the first panel uh, after that shot – She's clearly whacked him right in the forehead with it too. That's even better. I mean, it's just, you know, a car. But
2: bouncing it's also off this cool how face. he essentially just kind of shrugs it off. Yeah. Little woman, uh, you that. bother me. And she's like, "Wow." It's enough yeah. to annoy him, but that's all it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then he Make gives it. her a hell of a shot.
0: Oh, man, he knocks her through 1 2 three, four, into a fifth building, and Cap's like,
1: oh,
2: shit.
1: See, that, that's the part, that's what I wanted to see more of with this, because that, to me, that's that's so reminiscent of something like Destroy, which I'm pretty sure is later down the line in comics from this. But these, these I mean, because this is an epic battle. I mean, we see epic battles all the time, especially in Marvel, and we see epic battles in New York, but this is one where, it's epic in the amount of just sheer carnage because they are taking out buildings left and right. And uh, I, I, I
2: love this. I, I just, I wish there'd been a little bit more of it
1: is the only thing. But yeah, back to, uh, back to Spider-Man in
2: Egypt, sorry. Yeah, no problem. He's in Egypt and he's taken out followers of the Pharaoh fairly easily. And he's, you know, he's, he's satisfied with this. This is a battle more on his level. And then he eventually finds the Egyptian in a lab coat. <laughs> yeah with pencils in the pocket <laughs> yes he does he's got the pocket protector and everything but but he still has the same uniform as everybody else underneath the lab coat <laughs> and he uh he pretty much gi- you know gives away information fairly easily to spider-man about what's going on All well he's probably raging and this is the family point upstairs in the synopsis in i'm sorry
1: He's probably got family upstairs in Cairo. Yeah,
2: maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, you know, where he, where he's about to destroy the school and realizes that this is similar to the one where he met Filene's basement. And uh, he hesitates and Captain America starts to try and reason with him, at which point he, he kind of sits his big fat ass on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and he's making sad face. So he's he's almost ready to give in.
0: Maybe I've been wrong
2: you're right you speak wisdom there's wisdom in your words you know know what what i what i could almost hear is there is wisdom in your in your words avenger and i think i saw fear in the klingon's eyes
1: (laughs) this no
2: joke is my personal favorite
1: part of the entire story and i'll tell you why because this was the part of the story that felt the most authentically giant monster movie to me because what do they always do in giant monster (laughs) movies? Look, giant monster, let's shoot it and piss it off, you know? Because in a lot of these instances, the giant monster's not really like a monster it's just like some big misunderstood thing like the 50 foot like the 50 foot man when he when he gets mad and he throws the giant needle syringe yeah exactly (laughs) but you know i mean there's there's so many instances in in a monster movie where the monster is only it's like a monster in air quotes and if they had just left it the hell alone things would have been fine but somebody's just gotta mess with it and piss it off and then all hell breaks loose and this is a perfect example now granted you know everything hasn't been hunky-dory up to this point but cap's getting through to him but you Cap, can understand it, the
2: logic of the soldier too thinking this is oh, gonna be my sure. one chance
1: oh sure i can but i just this this to me is I, i'm not so much being critical as i'm this is hysterical because when i got to this point of the story i'm like yep this is what is always happens in those movies Hey, giant monster, let's shoot it and piss it off. I love that because that's exactly what they do. And, and it really pisses him off because not only is I'm sure that hurt, but you know, as he says in that next panel, I love his pose. He's just got this anguished stretch as he like gets back to his feet. And he's like, it's a trick. It was a ruse. It was a trap. You know, it's, (laughs) it's great. I love that. You know, and you can see he's pissed. And I love, love the look on cap. I mean, You fools. We I I don't imagine a man like Captain America with all he's seen and done gets genuinely frightened very often. But that panel, that very last panel of that page where the living monolith is rearing back his fist and his fist is as big at this point as like a bus. And he looks like he is going to punch teeny tiny Captain America. And Cap just has this look like no, wait! <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I love that. That is great. Because if he hits him,
0: and then he will kill him. it huh? will be
1: a splat. Because in the next panel, huh?
0: Yep. <laughs> and he's like, you shall die of whoa. And she hulks down there, and she's like, basically grabbed his ankle and flipped him over.
1: Uh, he's got to be wearing shorts or something on underneath that thing. At least I hope so. Otherwise, she's looking right up his dress.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't even want to think about methods of attack there. <laughs> So at this point the military takes an airstrike on him mm-hmm. with, with, in a populated area with very limited success. I love where he just he puts
1: up his hand he's like talk to the hand and that one jet flies right into his palm. That's great. Oh yeah.
2: And we, we once that's... again we again see an elevated train. Now I wonder you know with him this big the, the battle could have easily moved. They could be in Brooklyn or the Bronx where there are some elevated trains. I just realized that first
1: panel on the next page after he takes the plane out. Oh, that could be that the very,
0: World Trade Center.
1: Yeah, that is very similar to the cover. And that building behind his, that would be his right shoulder, almost looks like it could be the Empire State Building. So is that potentially the World Trade Center he's punching? No, they've been too, too far away. Are they well, too far away?
0: Yeah, Remember where we saw Freedom's Tower when we were on right. the Empire State Building? That was way down at the yeah, other okay, end. Yeah,
2: it's well, you know, it's you're, you're talking about maybe like close to forty blocks. Okay,
1: and that's pretty neat. I, I don't the... think I noticed that before. I only recall
0: that because I just happened to be looking at some pictures of that today on my phone. Right. And I and, and I was recalling how far that was because that's way down at the end of the uh, of the island there, right, right by the water.
1: You know, they might not come right out. And, and do it very blatantly, but there are a number of sequences in here that I can't help but wonder if if they're intentionally swiping from Kong, because the thing where he swats the plane out of the sky, and then the very next page he stomps the train tracks. Again, that's right out of Kong, where he takes out the L train and all that. So that's pretty neat. I love love the giant cell phone that caps calling the <laughs> calling the power company on Look cutting at the edge size technology there,
2: at that time. It's 1985, baby.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome!
2: Yeah, you could almost you could almost see the light bulb over Cap's head when he sees the oh yeah the the electric lines.
1: That is a great idea.
0: And Cap gives uh, gives uh, She Hulk uh, like a talking down to because he's like, "We're about to possibly kill a man. I don't consider that a cause for levity." I'd be like, "Dude, do you not see what he's done to the city?" Right. <laughs> yeah, Shut really. up.
2: Yeah, let's <laughs> let's get off the high horse now. Yeah, we we'll almost turn in you the... into Captain America paste, okay? In in this whole sequence here, though, really, the entire sequence, the A on his head is too big.
1: Oh, yeah, you know, I hadn't even noticed that. You're right. Hey! Oh, sorry. So, hey!
2: Basically, Cap doors yeah, right. him in, and She-Hulk takes the electric lines and puts it up against, I guess, his heel? <laughs> Where the hell is his shield? Did he lose it when he bonked
1: it off of his head? Mm. I didn't even notice that before, but in every panel's... I'm trying to backtrack it. OK, so he threw his shield. He broke up the conqueror. OK, he's got it when She-Hulk gets smacked through the building. Then we cut to Spider-Man. Now we're back to Cap. OK, he's got it there. Next time you see it is when the Fantastic Four he's,
0: show up in the park.
1: He's got it when he starts to talk to him on the roof. But then after they shoot the living monolith and piss him off, then Cap doesn't have it. And night. Well, no, oh, no, he's got, no. He's he's got, got it when he's, and, when he's yelling yeah. at She-Hulk. Yeah, so I don't. It's yeah, that's weird. It's kind of back and forth. He has it and then he doesn't have it. Then he has it. And then he doesn't have it. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, I love that. He's, I, I guess, like you say, his his uh like his boots and his wristbands and all that must be some kind of metal because she jams it right up against his uh, like his ankle
2: bone. Wow. <laughs> you snoring or making it, electric sounds? Like a, it's like that was giant, electric sound. Giant big Joy jump. Buzzer on his ankle. Ow! And that basically puts him down for the count. <laughs> yep. But he has not stopped growing. <laughs> so eventually he's just going to destroy the island by growing too big. Just like me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's powered by cosmic dew. Oh, well, that'd be great. <laughs> I could turn into the living Billilith. See, see, now, we're on page 73... Of I guess what's a seventy-eight page story, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Thor is coming out now. Why does he deserve to be on the cover? I thought that as well. Yeah, because it really should have been Sue. Because you, you know you you're, you're hanging out the whole battle watching it on TV. You come after it's done, so you could say, "Oof, verily, we wanted to help you all along." You know, it's like, get out of here. Verily, my soaps were on. So I do like the fact that they come up with a plan using the admantium wire that they just happen to have. Right. uh, And and Mjolnir to to get rid of him, but that it doesn't work. Good thing Star Fox is there. That was sarcasm. Well, I noticed that that one pen where they come
1: walking in, it says um, five of the mightiest men on Earth. And I'm thinking, Star Fox?
2: Where are they? He is supposed to be fairly powerful. I don't okay. think I know if he's one of the mightiest men on earth. But.
1: Well, he is a he is a titan
0: from you know Titan's moon, but and he is like what uh, what, what is he Thanos's nephew? But, but wait, man, when we say Does five of them are powerful, I don't
2: know. You got Thor, Iron Man, Wonder Man, Star Fox, and who's the check. Fifth? Is check, that check, Hawkeye?
0: Check, Hawkeye? Hawkeye,
2: yeah, he's, he's one of them. But yeah, there you go. He's just a regular man. You're you one of the
0: most powerful
3: men on earth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I thought that was kind of yeah. weird too. Yeah, Star Fox, I want to say he's Thanos'
2: brother yes.
1: or stepbrother, brother. something like that.
2: Brother, brother, they're both sons of Mentor.
1: That's right, half-brother.
2: That was before before he started going going hanging out with Billy Batson. <laughs> Billy
1: Batson, I, I knew you were going to say that. I was thinking the same thing.
2: <laughs> so what, while they're trying to get out, rid of the, the living monolith body, the followers of the Pharaoh come and start fighting the, the heroes... Which now includes Spider-Man, who's returned from Egypt.
0: Yeah, he oh. came back with the FF because he figured out how to free them. But even though he freed them, um, the monolith is still growing. And he's laying there going, <laughs> I'm still growing. <laughs> they the city.
1: How did they get back from Egypt so fast?
2: Uh, Fantastic they teleported car?
1: back. Yeah, I guess. That's, pass- that's possible. I guess. Well, they have the Fantastic Car here, but the Fantastic Car wasn't with them in Egypt. Well he did have that yeah, he did have the thing that he got there with, so they could have uh, They yeah. took
2: uh when when Cap Oh Spider Man came over, were, they came over in the Fantastic Car.
0: It says while the faithful were puzzling over that, I was able to free the FF and get us to the transport pyramid before Hey, what's that rumbling?
1: Oh, uh, okay. Okay. What's that so,
0: rumbling? Oh, I I guess the living monolith cut one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. As the battle is
2: going on, the monolith is actually like enjoying the the success that his hordes are having until a, a, a child is about to get blasted and a man sacrifices himself to save her. And then, I guess there's an epiphany by the uh, monolith that his anger is misplaced. And he says Thor should try his scheme again because now he's going to try and help. And he lifts himself slightly, which allows Mjolnir to... Oh, wait, he sheds that space. big giant tear like he saw somebody littering in the park. <laughs> Well we we do what what was his name, Scott? Oh god, I don't I I don't remember Ooh, the, now. The Indian? Yeah. Oh. Mm, mm. I, I don't remember. Oh, we'll just call him Injun Joe. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that's not insensitive. So we have our Injun Joe moment, but then he allows Thor to lift him into space where he becomes Ego the Living Planet. Fling your hammer, Thor. Now I did have one
1: slight nitpick that part where he throws it. Now I think that's really awesome, by the way, that you know he uses Mjolnir to to pull him into space, essentially. So but you're gonna then, do the you're gonna do the patented Scott Gardner sound effect when he gets pulled into space. <laughs> 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 but when he gets in, you know, uh, to a certain height, Mjolnir then turns to return to Thor, and it says here. Uh, where does it say? And so the enchanted hammer turns sharply, streaking earthward with a whip-like motion that snaps
2: Mjolnir's suddenly taut leather thong.
1: Yeah, uh, it, I don't. Wouldn't, wouldn't yeah, have it's, it's a little Couldn't...
2: convenient as far as the timing of it. You know, it, it didn't snap when it lifted him into space, but it snaps. yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: I, I don't like that. I, I would rather it say that Mjolnir whip, you know, did this whip crack motion and snapped the end of the adamantium tether. As opposed to snapping the actual leather of Thor's hammer, I don't like that. Or even even
2: that uh, even that the monolith somehow released the hammer would have been okay with me.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was the. I, I know it seems incredibly nitpicky, but that was one of the things that really bothered me with this because you know Thor's hammer is one of those objects, much like Cap's shield, where it can take this you know it's it's meant to take this it's you know it's personally enchanted by odin himself so i don't like the idea that that the that the thong can be broken and so i i know again it's i know it's super nitpicky but i i, I would much rather it just snapped the buckle off the the tether or whatever as opposed to breaking the the hammer itself i thought that was kind of weird
2: yeah I, I agree it's it's nitpicky but it does stand out and i agree with you mhm and uh I guess that's effectively where our story ends and I don't know if they have a through on this. But
1: wait, what about um, all the all the followers, so what do they do? Yeah, that's what I wondered too because the followers um when when he gets pulled off when he jumps essentially and gets pulled into you know into the air, the followers are standing there just you know just watching because they've been ordered to stop fighting and the one says the master is leaving, what shall we do? And the other guy says, "What we have always done, we follow." And it shows them and their little, <laughs> you know, their little starfighters streaking off after him. But then, when you turn the page and see the the monolith in space,
2: well, you know They're all no over right?
1: there. So, that's, did they? Did because they fly? they're all dead. That's what I'm wondering. Did they fly into space and kill themselves? Well, because if when that's they first
2: that's the way
0: comes, I saw it. They, when they first come zooming into to to New York. There's no covers on those ships they're on. They're wide open in the air. And the guys... Right, yeah. Some guys are riding sky sky motorcycles, and all those guys went up in the atmosphere and died. They're all dead. Hmm. Dumb asses.
1: Well, I mean, they were willing to to live and die at his command because earlier in the book he was going to punish that one guy. He told him to step out of his sky thing and plummet to his death. And the guy was going to do it. So... Yeah, they're fanatics. Now the Living Monolith does come back. I read a little bit of that. Yeah. History. Um,
0: so he doesn't stay in space forever.
1: I was kind of sad to to see that. I read that too. I haven't read the any of the actual stories where he's come back, but I I saw that in his entry too. That apparently he he did come back at some point. I was a little bit a little bit sad about that because. I don't know, there's certain stories, you know, like this one and, you know, the other one that comes to mind, uh, also, a, you know, a Marvel graphic novel, is uh, The Death of Captain Marvel. I think with stories like that, you know, they're they're meant to be kind of conclusive, like, okay, that's it with this character, so... Well, it says, uh, years passed, but while the living planet may have been
0: content with his new lot in life, Apocalypse was still focused on his own destiny in the fabled Twelve of Power with the help of the Children of the Sun... Uh, apocalypse made alliances with the alien scrolls and Deathbird of the Shi'ar, locating the living planet as it drifted through deep space. Death- Deathbird collected the essence of Immort Abdul in a specially prepared sarcophagus and brought him back to Earth, where the children of the store s- store of the sun, children <laughs> of the sun, children of the sun, restored Abdul in his massive human form as a living monolith once more.
2: No. No. Well, they, yeah. you know, I mean, that's the nature of comics. You know, you, you have to eventually you go back to status quo. I mean, it's just the way it is for the most part. Very rare that you have a conclusive ending. You know, right now, Captain Marvel and Uncle Ben <laughs> and, and the, and the Waynes. It's about it.
0: Oh, and, and at one point, uh, Ahmed Abdul got the, um, the gem of Sidorak and became the the juggernaut for a brief period. Okay, so okay, he had like the Juggernaut. Hel- he had the Juggernaut helmet with his Egypt outfit, but his like body was stone. It's an interesting picture. I'll I'll put the link here if either of you want to, at some point to uh, take a gander. Or Scott, did you already look at it? Or at what? Here, here's the entry for um for the, the on UncannyXMen.net for the, the Living Model. It's his history. Oh, okay.
1: Instance. So yeah, I was looking at it off of. Uh... Some something i probably Wikipedia or something earlier, but oh, this is nice. It's got pictures and everything. Yeah, sweet.
0: Yeah, you scroll down, you see where he became um, briefly was the was the juggernaut. I'm the juggernaut. Oh, sorry. Oh.
1: <laughs> Ooh, the art's nice though. This looks like uh, who's that? Paul Ryan? Not sure. Or not Paul Ryan? Um, Paul Rudd? Oh, sorry. No, that guy. I, I can't think of his name now. I've just totally blanked pull freeze <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't oh I don't like the juggernaut one though that's silly I like these other ones though oh I can't think of that guy's name he's a great artist which one are he... you talking about which picture the okay so you got the bottom one where he's the juggernaut but the two above that
2: uh... that guy
1: that did like the clandestine oh and... oh oh Alan Davis Alan Davis thank you yes that's what I was thinking of Paul Neary uh, that's what I was thinking Paul Neary and Alan Davis oh, are okay. usually, usually work together that's what I was trying to think of was Paul Neary but yeah Alan Davis yeah that's uh, uh, that's nice I like that art I might have to check that out sometime although I'm really not crazy about the idea that, of him coming back uh, I like the way this story kind of wraps up
2: yeah yeah okay well I think we're at the point where it's time to give you a ratings <laughs>
0: really do we need to go through the the formality
1: (laughs) yes i'll I'll go um all right cover um i'm gonna be honest i i love the cover um i have minor quibbles with the coloring of the primary picture especially at the bottom portion but i have problems with the coloring in most all this issue to be honest with you so that's I'm just gonna kind of take that into account. But overall, um, you know a, a, a cover's job is to sell the book, and it was the cover image that sold this book to me. I wanted to read this simply because of the cover on this. So it totally did its job. Uh, I'm gonna give it, I'm gonna give it an A. It would be an A plus except for, again, just some minor quibbles with uh, with coloring and a little bit of the ink job uh, down toward the bottom of the page. But just I mean, just a great iconic image. I, I love this. And, you know, political incorrectness be damned. Uh, I'd still love a poster of this. I, I just think it's a great image. I think it's really cool. Um, the interior art, I really like it. It's uh, It has its issues here and there, but overall I do really enjoy the art. I think most of my quibbles with it come down to some of the coloring choices, um, also some of the printing um, just the way it, it printed, I, I think this was still kind of an experimental time for comics when they were trying to mature and go to, you know, things like nicer paper and a nicer, you know, the graphic novel format and things like this. So, you know, there's bound to be some wonkiness with that sort of thing. Uh, but taking all that into account, I still really like this. Um Alan Silvestri, uh, yeah, not Alan Silvestri, um, (laughs) I'm getting tired, Mark Silvestri, rather Mark Silvestri, not one of my favorite artists, but I I do like the job that he did on this one. I do like Jeff Isherwood as a, as an inker. Um, overall, I think they worked really, really well on this particular one. Uh, I think I'm going to go an A minus on the art. Definitely some room for improvement, especially again, as I say, with the coloring, um, but overall, I really do like the art on this. And the story, I think, I think I will go an A on the story as well. would be an A plus except for what I said before. Um, it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong with the story. It's not that it doesn't that it's not good or that it fails anywhere. Um, but as I said before and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it, it just basically comes down to, could have been a little bit more action, could have little, been a little bit more actual rampage in New York, and there could have been more of a point to it being set in New York by seeing New York things, if you know what I mean. So that, that all said, um, bumping it down from an A-plus to just simply an A. But overall, I mean, a, a top-notch book, and, and definitely an A-book in my opinion. Um, I think this is a lot of fun. And uh, for those listening, if you've never read it, do yourself a favor. Check it out sometime. It's a lot of fun. I know you can get this one on the cheap. I've, I've seen it out there.
2: All right. I'm going uh, to make mine quick. I'm going to say A-minuses across the board for me. Uh, everything about it is outstanding, and I'm just going to point out a couple of little weaknesses that just drop it from an A to an A-minus for me. On the cover, I think they have the insets of the superheroes because they didn't have confidence in a book of the living monolith selling. But but in doing so, they took what was a terrific image of the living living monolith and they made it just part of the cover instead of the cover. And it almost creates a look on the cover as if it's the cover of a coloring book. And I don't like that. But the image of the living monolith is so outstanding that it it overcomes that and still brings it up to an A- anyway. The interior art, I think, is really good overall we pointed out a couple of little weaknesses here and there uh it's just it's excellent it's just you know it doesn't hit that greatest of all time kind of thing that would take it to an a plus but uh but i think you know a minus is a solid solid grade it's certainly not a criticism and story wise the, the weakness that i have is just that it uh the way it just kind of ignores history and kind of takes off on its own, even though it's not really an Elseworlds story. And as you said, Scott, I think uh, you had a good point as far as the pacing. That ultimately, when they finally get to the battle, the resolution kind of comes a little quicker than it needs to. And right. They could have stretched that out. Excuse me, just a little bit more. And and that's you know, that's it. Just it's what takes a really really good book that could have been like an all-time great. It's not quite an all-time great. It's just really, really solid. Mm-hmm. And that's so overall. I'm that. giving A-minuses across the board and an A-minus overall.
0: Cool. Okay. Um. Yeah, for the cover, I'm, I think I'm going to give it an A-minus as well. I think they could have made the main picture larger and incorporated the heroes in the picture would have been a way. Uh, I hadn't really thought about it being looking like a coloring book until you pointed that out. But yeah, maybe if they had incorporated the heroes in the picture, you know, that might have eased that possible fear that it wasn't going to sell. With you know, because obviously he has to fight somebody. So yeah, maybe they they should have had them in there. So I'm going to give that an A minus. I'm going to give the art inside a A almost an A plus because I liked how, whether done intentionally or by accident, how the Egypt scenes differ from the New York scenes. And I think that was a nice touch. And whether or not that, those two shots are blurry or not, we saw when we first show up in New York, again, maybe that was a happy accident. It kind of makes it look a little three-dimensional for me. So the art is going to be A to A+. Plus. And the story, you know, at, at this point... Hmm, Eighty-five. I guess I guess they were starting to give villains because I think at this point we would have gotten a little bit more of the back history of magneto um, to kind of make him more of a, of a sympathetic villain but it wasn't a complete cliche like it is now so judging it for its time um, on that aspect, you know that's that's an a to to an a plus but yeah it does even though the the story does go long at a good click you get to the end and and like we said early on you know that it's almost like they're like okay we got to wrap it up we got gonna finish this up and that's the end of the book good night <laughs> so that kind of bumps it back down to to an a minus so so for me i guess it's a straight up a with the minuses and the pluses mixed in
2: okay and that's revenge of the living monolith and no surprise we're we're after editing, we're probably at about two and a half hours here. Mm. So I think we're not gonna do a second book and we're not gonna <laughs> read any email. <laughs> so I'll save my book for next week, and Scott and Bill will find something to cover also. And Sounds that will like be plan. week
0: four of Horror Month. And who knows what it'll be? Maybe it'll be a ghost. It'll be ghost books.
1: which you may find at www.2TrueFreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corp of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes, which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email, to two true freaks at gmail.com please take a moment to stop by the two true freaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts won't you thanks and we'll see you next week but um
0: uh blah, 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 blah. what was i saying